Hello there, and welcome to episode 382 of the Creighton Crowbar. My name is Chris Thurston, and joining me tonight are Tom Senior. Hello. And Marsh Davis. Hello. How are you both? Fine and dandy, thank you. I'm also very well. It's been a beautiful, crisp uh, sort of shoulder season of winter day mm. in Bath. It's been beautiful. Yeah, we, we hit October the 1st and it immediately became fully autumn in a way that I was delighted by. My favourite time of year, I'll be honest. Me, mine too, mine too. Just, I've been very sweaty for a very long time. And finally, <laughs> I can hide myself in a jumper and that's it. That's all I want, really, is to to feel the brisk breeze and... uh and cover myself in more and more jackets until I become a kind of festive orb around <laughs> December oh, yeah. time. And come the new year, start slowly shedding my outer jackets until I uh, once again kind of plop back out pink and sweaty into next summer. <laughs> and so the cycle continues. Sorry, I've, I've skipped ahead to the discussion of the film we want to talk about, I think. Um, <laughs> um, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh in the meantime, it's been a while since I've done this, but I believe the thing we're going to do is talk about some of the computer games that we've each been uh, enjoying or not in our various uh, lives. I don't hear any objections to this, so I'll proceed. Um, Marsh? Yes. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I've been playing Sable. Is that the mm. question you were going to ask? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was, I, was, <laughs> okay. I realised I would have asked it, but... You know what? You just you just carry on, my friend. Thank you. Good. Yes. Um, uh, I, I'm glad that you're interested in what I've been playing. Um, yeah, Sable's all right, isn't it? Is it? Is it? <laughs> well, that's what we're here to determine. Tell us about Sable. What is Sable, and and where does it go? You are a teen on a coming of age vision quest sort of thing, roaming an alien desert planet and doing quests for folks. Um, until you decide what kind of teen you're going to be. Mm. Whether you're going to be a, a teen who's into cartography, a teen who's really into climbing, you know, all the kinds of teen. <laughs> and it's a sort of very low-key, combat-less Breath of the Wild, uh, but with a hover bike. And it's, it captured people's attention at first because it has this incredibly striking cell-shaded art style, which is a, a homage to the great comic artist Mobius. And that just, I mean, it's, its you know, as soon as it was shown, I can't remember where it was debuted, but I remember suddenly the internet was a bus with a buzz with people. Um, was it the Summer um, Games Fest? I might be wrong about that, but I think it was one of the highlights of one of Jeff's shows. Escapades. Yeah, I think that's right. as well, right? It feels like, it. It feels like mm. a long time ago, pre-pandemic, which means a decade ago. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, th I think something about it. I mean, I, I didn't. I have to say, it didn't immediately capture me in the way it did other people. Um, but I think it grew sort of in the imaginations of people in the way that certain games do. Obviously, No Man's Sky is sort of like the the urtext for that kind of uh, demented enthusiasm. But uh, people have been looking forward to this in a, in a really kind of uh, avid way. Um, and I think some of the things they, that, are, that are really attractive about it, not only just the, the art style, but this sort of the aspiration to create this combatless, exploratory experience, which sort of harks back mm -hmm. to games like like the combat 
less parts of Shadow of the Colossus, for example, with all its climbing and exploration, and obviously Zelda, but in this alien planet desert setting, which also has this really concerted effort to create a sort of futuristic culture, which doesn't just project, you know, Western values onto a like a, a quote unquote exotic setting. Um, and uh, it's it's obviously really commendable in that respect. I think it is sometimes successful, but um, oh, this is such a cunty thing to say. But I'm gonna, <laughs> I, I think I think perhaps some of the enthusiastic endorsement of the game since its release has been sort of rooted in a respect for its intentions as this sort of arty, forward thinking, but also nostalgic game, rather than its execution. Mm. Um, and I, that's probably mean and, and wildly presumptuous, but you know that's sort of my thing, isn't it? So, <laughs> I don't think that's it. I don't think that's wildly off. I think I can probably mm. find the unsatisfying middle of this take, if you like. <laughs> and it would be to root it in my personal experience of the game, which is admittedly I've only played like a, a, an hour or a couple of hours at this point. I feel like I'm barely kind of on that journey. Um, but if, you know, the 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 introduction gives you a kind of. Uh, encourages you to go off and kind of take in the span of verbs that you're going to be engaging with and the kinds of things you're going to be doing with them. All three of them. Yeah, all three of them. Climb, map, and bike. The three <laughs> verbs. Um, and um, I found myself struggling to connect with it, really deeply appreciating the art, um, enjoying the kind of tone set by the writing, which I would like to obviously return to as a subject. Um, but realizing that I, as a person right now, um, and probably too sort of highly strung to enjoy a piece of entertainment that is about relaxing me or that, that strange kind of um, double bind of not being able to settle into a relaxing meditative activity because your brain won't stop yelling, right? Like the impossibility of meditation when you're too stressed, even though it will help that kind of thing. I don't know if that's a universal experience, but it's certainly something I have. And so I, I certainly felt the impulse to blame myself for it not working for me. Mm. Right. And I think that's probably where you find some of that. Um, it's not just a desire to see it succeed because the idea of it is nice. I think it's that sense of like, this is such a um, personal experience that it's setting out to create such a self-directed experience that it, you know, it's easy to say, maybe I am not having a great time with the self-directed experience because I'm very tired rather than <laughs> because it is failing to be compelling in some way. Well, I don't think you're entirely wrong. I mean, my first instinct is is always to externalize blame. Um, and um, I, I feel justified in that, having now come around to the opinion that I quite enjoy it. Um, I do think that whilst it is, it does end up being this kind of chill experience. I do think it's also quite a sparse game in, in lots of ways, in its mechanics, in the amount of content that it has. Um, and I, I don't know how much of that is sort of like a, an aesthetic pose or how much of it is just a limitation. Um, mm. But I don't, think, I don't think you'd be wrong in finding, finding it a little lacking or, or boring in places. I think we should. I think we should talk about the writing though, because I think there is something sort of meaty to discuss there. Um, mm. uh, and I should sort of say at the top of this that this is a really minor thing about the writing. <laughs> and uh, I, I really, I, I you know, I like the game. I, I broadly like the writing in it, uh, and I, I like the aim of it. But just sort of just to get into the sort of nitty gritty of how you balance 
uh, a sense of voice against larger artistic aim and how you structure and deliver your dialogue in the UI, I think Sable makes choices that are like really worth critiquing in a sort of pedantic and maybe slightly twatty way, uh, which is my <laughs> natural instinct. And and to be clear, I think it's like totally fine. So, mm. so I, I, I'm really, uh, I, I'm worried that people will come away from this thinking I'm saying that the game is too woke, which is absolutely not what I'm saying. And I think it's, and I think it's totally fine for your game to embody like progressive values and have the sort of decolonial ambitions of Sable. And in fact, I think it's really cool. And the world of Sable is really refreshing and interesting. But so here's the Watch, thing. Can I, think, I just say quickly? Yes. The thing you've just done, the caveat you've just laid in my mind sits like a row of like burning buses in front of like a big ramp that you are about to leap <laughs> over like evil Knievel. Like you've, <laughs> you've got, there's a little, there's a down ramp on the other side of this row of burning buses, but I, I'm, I can't wait to see you land there. Am I going to hit saying. it? We'll, <laughs> we'll find out. Um, so he, so the thing is, I think if your viewpoint character becomes, it doesn't really matter actually about the, the ambitions of a game. I think if your viewpoint character becomes sort of too declarative, a mouthpiece of you, the writer and your ideals, then you can pull the player out of the fiction. Mm. Um, I think here you've got this, I don't think it's necessarily a, a, a problem, but it sort of, it poses the question to the player. Is this a problem? And that's almost enough. <laughs> and and it's, it's like, so your, the fiction here is you are in this uh, nomadic culture on an alien planet. Uh, uh, high tech has collapsed back into mysticism. Um, and yet the sort of the, the, the voice of the character uh, and the ideals that the character has, which are all very commendable, are those that would be familiar to Twitter circa 2021. And, and you know, I, I, have, I share those ideals and that's, that's all fine. But if your character sort of dispenses a paragraph musing about this sort of inter-tribe identity politics, then you might wonder, so just, you might just think, what, like, whose brain am I in? Am I really in the brain of this nomad teen embarking on a vision quest? Or am I in the brain of you know, somebody, you know, a 20 something narrative designer. I don't I have no idea who the narrative designer is. So who's like, you know, in touch with the social agenda of the, the modern moment here on earth. And it, it could be either like, but I think unless you rigorously support it being possible for this nomad team to have these sorts of ideas, then it poses the question about where is, where is this voice coming from? Is it coming from the character or is it coming from the author? Um, I don't, is that something, have I died, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I think we're still sailing through the air. Um, um, and look, here I come on a trapeze. Um, the, um, the, I think the, I kind of get what you mean. I think there are moments in its, its world building, like that, uh, I, I, I like that it does, um, it has a, there, there are positive elements for its world building, and especially in the wordless expression of that world building, like an early character, um, who uses they them pronouns for example and that's just sort of uh unremarked as part of you know the way they are written and it, it's allowed to stand as such that i think are successful i feel like with the moments that you're kind of referring to i do see what you mean i think um i think the it, we enter the complicated territory here of there being a benefit to um calling out these specific things however i do agree and and to making to making that you know text rather than simply subtext however i do agree that it's a slightly awkward fit 
um, with a game that is so much about you determining the identity of this character uh, for yourself, that when those sort of um, interjections sort of like come unbidden from that character, it feels like a little bit of an unexpected sidebar. The the thing I thought was quite successful about the writing, I said earlier, I think it was successful establishing a tone. It's like the dialogue choices that you're given in the game are 100% about like establishing the tone of voice for your character, not out changing the outcome of events right um or like at least the ones that are the principally the ones that i've encountered mm. and i i quite liked that straight away as a way for me to get into the mindset of like okay well who do i want to be either what would i say or what feels right for this character and um i did think that the way those sort of subtly changed the tone of subsequent conversations or felt like they changed the tone of subsequent conversations was successful at making me go Oh, I'm I'm role playing here, and I think that leads quite naturally into what mm-hmm. the game's broader ambition is. But I do agree with you that I think the moments where, um, it is also kind of using that as a that character as a kind of um platform from which to tell you about the world, um, that feels like it, it is at odds with the journey the character is on, which is to figure out who they yeah. are in the world. And yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't quite consistently enough present you with those opportunities to shift the character. Yeah. Either, like, I mean, I actually, I really like the character that you are. You know, they are smart and they're reasonable and thoughtful, and you know, they're abnormally wise about sociological issues. Um, and the, but they're also at times kind of like disarmingly insecure and goofy. Um, and like you say, there is occasionally room sort of to maneuver within this character, but then a lot of the time your internal monologue seems to be largely fixed. And so it's sort of weird that they occasionally throw this occasional choice at you where you can just be a dick to someone and it's just not really supported by the the rest of the, the text mm. around it. I wonder um, if... Uh, so one of the things I've really enjoyed about the dialogue and the way the whole world is set up is that there are, uh, there's a very earnest, um, among all the characters, just very earnest expressions of love for people in an almost familiar way. Uh, even though there are like the context of uh, the traditional family doesn't really exist in this world. But so what you get is when you meet people, there's a sort of generosity of spirit <laughs> in every character where even if someone could be a twat uh, or, or, or be slightly dickish, there's a fundamental respect for each other's humanity that kind of flows through the entire text, if you like. And I think like if they were to put something in that massively let you undermine that, uh, I don't know if it would be as successful as an overall kind of tonal assumption that overall tone i'm not sure mm. i will say i i, I actually picked I, I agree i think that's a big strength that it has i think it's 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 handling of like conflict between characters or moments of like disappointment or you know subversion of expectations and the way that that's all kind of resolved within the broader context of like trust and affection for one another is really mm. nice and i think yeah. you know i like i, I think I, i'm not i think it's all super appropriate to the game the moment very early on when uh, a character, a little character, a child ran up to me, that's what they're called, um, ran up to me and said, I've got the thing you want, but you can't have it until you give me three Beatles. I did <laughs> yeah. lament the fact that I couldn't say, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that we, we maybe, you know, we, uh, we as in um, these uh, space nomads are lucky to live in a culture where we handle these moments of, of disappointment and conflict with far greater grace and decorum than the the stressed out humans of earth circa 2021 however 
I will run you over with my hover bike now because I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, and I think I know what you mean. Much like I think I think there's a sort of I struggle with it a little bit because um, there's a there's a moment. It's it's right at the beginning of the game actually, where like you go to pick up you know the the first quest really is like assemble the three parts of your hover bike basically so you can have your hover bike, but this is happening because the guy who said he would make you your hover bike hasn't done it yet. And um, the game, and that's that's the scenario I was referring to when I was talking about the game handling, like you're, you can express your disappointment, but, you know, it's within this broader farm, you know, this broader supportive context of like this, you know, f- you know, sort of like found family that ultimately respect each other and understand that these things will be okay. And, and in this case, find the opportunity for a kind of self-betterment or self realization through solving this problem collectively um and they all sound to me that like rationalizations i would tell myself if i was disappointed that someone hadn't delivered my <laughs> my gliding day birthday bike and i was telling myself not to be upset about it <laughs> you know what i mean like there's a version of this where like you get to play as the only emotionally unreasonable person in the universe <laughs> where you're like what the fuck where the fuck's my bike <laughs> it's my bike day and then you storm off you know what i mean and it, it's it's like it's so pleasant as an experience that i think a little part of my psyche rebels instinctively <laughs> i think maybe that's that's like yeah. um uh there's this i think there's some simpatico there with the feeling you're describing of like i'm not quite connecting to this because the it's because honestly i think that you know it's writing is both humane and also deeply idealistic which is not a bad thing but it is also but i think unfortunately humane and idealistic are things that fight each other um (laughs) yeah i think human not always ideal i I think like the the question of like where is this this voice coming from is it's not even like up there as a, a problem that the game has it's just like a sort of simmering sort of tension that i think was interesting to talk about uh, mm. and uh, you have so well done um <laughs> but the other thing about the writing i think is is interesting is that um and i think this is actually less successful overall um is that it does this uh, thing where it divides the dialogue from um uh description and internal monologue by having them as separate pop-ups so you get the words that someone mm. actually says in this serif fonted pop-up and you click through and you get your characters unspoken impressions or actions in a um you know actually maybe, maybe that's the reef. yes yeah yeah um and i i don't think the payoff is always quite there like sometimes because these conversations are otherwise visually static and voiced it's really nice to add that extra bit of flavor um back in and provide the subtext the raw dialogue but a lot of the time it sort of gets in the way a little bit especially it's less so now that I'm many hours into the game, but in the early part of the game, the game needs to sort of deliver quite a lot of fairly perfunctory quest or mechanical information, like, you know, collect three beetles or whatever. And you're like, you know, I, yeah, I'm here to collect beetles. I don't really care about the guy's kind eyes twinkling, you know, behind their mask or whatever. And this isn't, it's not really about the quality of what's written, uh, which I think is good. It's just that the fact that they have to sort of attach it to quite mundane mission objectives sort of almost... Mm 
almost it? makes it feel like a self-important obstacle. Like you get some description and it'll be, you know, oh, I can see in, you know, what's his face shifting movement that he is hesitant and he, he places a hand on my shoulder and looks like he's about to speak, but then he turns away and then you click through and it's like, don't forget to use your compass to set waypoints. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, isn't, I, it felt to me as though it was, was like overcompensating for, you know, quite uninteresting objectives that were mechanically tedious to complete and that actually you know the payoff is that you get this character interaction that's really well written and well observed and part of you know the the whole seems to be the whole point the whole game is to get into that headspace with these characters yeah Um, whereas the actual kind of mechanical things you're doing in order to further those conversations are for me uh, a bit underwhelming and that's what's kind of led to me not falling in love with the game i think and mm-hmm. a lot of the kind of more emotional moments not landing for me at all so for example like uh, there's a moment where you ride out of the tutorial area and um on, on your bike and it, like it looks it looks gorgeous and uh, there's beautiful music playing and if i was to look at those graphics uh, as a video independently and then listen to that music as a piece of music independently i would love either of those things on their own but as a kind of collective experience that was trying to deliver for me it just didn't stick at all i just felt like i was just driving quite slowly across the landscape without objective or purpose and knowing (laughs) knowing that all the jumping and beetle fetching tasks i'd done were unsatisfying and frankly quite irritating (laughs) and that there were there was no further kind of mechanical interests kind of presenting itself to me like nothing to be excited about in terms of actually for me the jumping and the running and the you know the the very basic mechanical the the ways you're actually moving through the world none of those were particularly satisfying or exciting to me um and at that point i felt like there was kind of a cool visual like visual novel here that had a load of like mechanical dressing that wasn't good enough to kind of get in the way of it i don't know if, if that's fair yeah I mean, I, 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 some of the some of those aspects do improve during mm. the course of the game. Uh, for example, uh, your climbing ability becomes enhanced to some degree. Um, not it doesn't change the way that you approach things, but it, at the beginning of the game, they seem to have kind of frustratingly set a lot of the game's environments just at the threshold of am I actually meant to climb this? Yeah, uh, And they right. don't necessarily have, obviously, designed paths, and that leads to frustration. Once you get over that, and many more things become kind of approachable as a, as a climbing objective, the climbing itself doesn't become more interesting, but it takes some of that kind of irritation away. Um, there aren't really that many more kind of mechanical hooks to the game than, than you explore in the opening. Um, there... There are sort of puzzle dungeons which have uh, sort of sequence puzzles in them where you need to plug batteries into powers in power sockets to to you know uh, power up pistons which then throw you over to places where you can plug in other batteries into other sockets. They aren't really the most scintillating of puzzles, but they do feel interactive at least. Um, uh, and the and the reward from that is is sort of like getting like a, a captain's log describing the events that led to the, the the Space Hulk's crash landing, which sort of gives you some backstory to the world. Uh, and that, that, that stuff is interesting. Um, it is sort of doled out quite meagerly, I would I would say. Um, uh, but nonetheless, that, that's sort of enough to keep you going. And um, weirdly, there's... I mean, beyond the occasional fetch quest... Uh, which might involve like a slight puzzle element, like finding the right beetroot to lure a beetle out of a cave or something like this. Um, 
There's not that much else, but there is one quest line where you do sort of detective work. Like it becomes an information game. You go around and you interrogate various different people in the city and you figure out by yourself, you know, you piece together what has happened. Uh, there's, a, you know, an event which has set the city aroar and and you are brought in, you're sort of rather, uh, you, you, you lend your aid as, as an outsider to, to kind of unpick the pieces. And that, the, the kind of, the, that sort of interaction is not foreshadowed at all by any previous interaction you've had in the game. And as far as I know, it's, it's never explored a game. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just, uh, it, it's weird, but I, I, I tell you what, like think reading the reviews of Far Cry 66 today. I actually made me feel really grateful for that sort of weird asymmetry that Sable has where, you know, like I, I went to five other sort of settlements before I found this city where that, that, that sort of information game occurs. And there was very little to do in those five other, five other places. And then suddenly you stumble across this city and there's, there's a bunch of interesting, completely unique, uh, elements there. And, that's just so much more interesting to me than going to a city and expecting it to have the three, you know, three different quests, each which represents one of the tentpole mechanisms of the game. You know, oh, there's a, there's, you can pick the racing quest up from here or, you know, there's an assassination quest. Like, and the fact that this game eschews that kind of, you know, list of the map with open world quest iconography sort of style game was ended up being quite a delight to me. And it made the fact that that quest occurred in that city feels so much more special and rooted in that place than it would have been if that was like just a generic set of interactions which could be applied to lots of different circumstances elsewhere. Yeah, I think there's, a, there's an organic feeling to that, right? So talking about this, because I was thinking about the role of writing in the game, and I think I think it does have, I think, I think there's one stylistic thing that doesn't work for me, which is that, uh, that uh, serif font that is used for the... Um, you know, uh, narration functionally um, is it's also accompanied by like a typewriter sound. And it creates the sense that the, the things that you're encountering or the experiences are being inscribed in a book somewhere in an experience where I don't really feel like that's the case, at least in the, you know, because of how freeform and undirected it is otherwise. Right. Like hmm. it doesn't feel like you're uncovering the story of a novel or something like that as other games might. It feels like you are, you know, or at least it wouldn't necessarily be a novel that would make a, a ton of, I don't know. You could write that novel. I think I climbed and then I fell down again. And then I <laughs> found a beetle and then I rode my bicycle. Um, but um, what I'm saying is it has this sort of like literally like embodied literary sort of motif that doesn't feel quite resonant with the, yeah. the activity set of the game. However, what that put me in mind of is the kinds of game that this is closest to, even though I think they feel quite different, which is like um, Tailbird. So some seas or skies, where which yeah. are functionally games about um, traversal of the landscape. Obviously, those games do have combat, but like traversal of the landscape as a kind of like somewhat meditative exercise that you undertake between pockets of interest and story. And obviously, those games lean far more heavily on writing. Indeed, it's their kind of whole purpose to kind of you know to like they're like an explore they're, they're a space that you explore that's packed with short stories and the interactive fiction that you kind of go and weave yourself into and i think they have their own issues they have their own you know struggles occasionally with pacing or repetition that come from trying to marry those things but i think they're you know they're broadly successful as i think 
this probably is as well, but I think maybe it, it's slightly uncomfortably balanced where there may be a version of this that leans far harder on the writing where, you know, it is a game very much about those interactive conversations and those sort of fiction moments and the, the way the characters are written and the, the biking is the thing you do to kind of soak in the world while you're traveling between mm. those things. Or a game that it, I think it equally could be that is almost wordless, that lets the environment speak for itself, that lets the characters express themselves far more through gesture and expressive masks than through long passages of text. And where you kind of intuit meaning and kind of attach your own significance to the actions that you're undertaking, which would be closer to the other game that this feels a bit like, like Journey, for example, yeah. or, you know what I mean? Or um, indeed like Ico or Shadow of the Colossus or something like that. And it's really interesting because it feels like for me, squarely located between those poles um, in a I way that, that doesn't always work for it. Um, I think that uh, the Banner Saga is super good at nailing the mm. in between that uh, I think like that's for me is a satisfying midpoint for uh, meaningful conversations and uh, actual really plot driven story progression over the course of three games with uh, also a, an interesting turn based combat system that pops in every now and then and uh, and also these beautiful sequences of travel which where you, right. you just watch the travel happening and that that is how you kind of uh, a lot of the aesthetics and the the whole. Uh, hate to use the word vibe, but whatever. Um, like that's what you, you, you get the kind of um, the feeling of being in a frozen wilderness and surviving, seeing your supplies kind of tick down, and then getting into a, a very dramatic survival situation, both through combat and then through dialogue as well. Uh, and that that felt to me like mechanically rich, but also uh, narratively rich. And mm. the, the, the two fed into one another in a way that it feels as though um, with something like Sable or games that have dialogue like that, often they don't touch any of the other systems so you always kind of go out of one segment which is mechanically driven into a narrative bit and they never talk to each other those bits and 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 for me that, that having played stuff that is well connected i don't i think that just kind of like jars me out of the experience so i don't quite mm. connect with it in the same way yeah i don't know i mean there's definitely not enough friction to travel in this on in the hover biking to make it i mean literally because it's a hover bike um to make it interesting uh but at the same time i don't know that i would want to connect that to some sort of more substantial system like oh you need to accrue supplies in order to get from point a to point b or something like that i think that would end up sort of just bogging it down further yeah um but I'm, i think you're right that there yeah there's there's there could be something else here which which enlivens it and ties ties it together Either, yeah, the hover biking well, just, yeah. Mm. With tra- like, it's not seeking travel as challenge, right? Mm. What it is seeking is travel as vibe. I think Tom was absolutely right. Yeah. And I think, but I think that's just such an ephemeral quality. Like, I've had, I've done a lot of traveling the last couple of weeks, um, a bizarre amount after such a, a long and kind of home housebound couple of years. Um, I've been on a, a bus, a car, a boat, a train, a helicopter, a plane, and at one point, very briefly, an electric scooter, which is more... Wow. Vi- I know, thank you. Like, that is, <laughs> like, you know, just an incredible number of vehicles to have briefly been on. The electric scooter, I definitely cheated. I realized I was heading for some kind of personal recent vehicles been on record. And was walking through Bristol, where they have these little electric scooters that are, like, you unlock with an app. And I pretended that I was trying to unlock one with my phone. I don't have the app. Just so I could stand on it for a little bit, look frustrated, and then move on which is a normal thing 
to do, but I can say I was on that scooter, so that's, that's fine. But the point I'm making is um, I've had the, both experiences lately of like having these moments where you, you get on the train and you're like rolling off across the countryside and it's beautiful out and you, I personally at least find travel very resonant and very kind of moving, pun unintended, when, when it kind of hits. And sometimes you are just on a train and you would like to go home, you know? <laughs> and I think there's like, there is a, there's a, there's a, and, and the, the differentiating factor is how receptive you are to that experience, which brings me back to this issue. I keep having with Sable where I find myself very going like, wow, this is the beauty. The art is beautiful. I love the dust and sand plumes being kicked up by my hover bike. I feel like I should be having a feeling, mm. but I'm not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think the art style works against it here because whilst those images might be beautiful in like a, you know, a single double page spread that you look at and then you, you move past, um, when you're in them for long periods of time, they're, they're, I mean, in a literal sense, there isn't enough texture to to keep your attention. Um, mm. And they do, they are deserts, so there's not a lot going on. And whilst that, that does throw up interesting situations where you're, you are so kind of used to the monotony of the environment that little details then uh, attract your attention in a much more kind of significant way and you're like oh that rock you know is is unusual i wonder if there's something there and you know it turns out after climbing it for half an hour there's a pair of low poly pants at the top and you go yay um but you know i i, I think that that is the advantage of having the, the travel is that it does kind of lead you astray and the game doesn't doesn't ever kind of signpost uh a lot of the a lot of the sort of things that you can do there uh so if mm. it makes travel essential by by having that be the only way you can stumble across certain aspects of the game um for example like the the entire fact that you can level up your climbing ability is something that the game doesn't mention as far as i've encountered um and you just have to stumble across a particular place where a particular resource that you have no reason to believe would be associated with your ability to climb suddenly becomes useful <laughs> um right. and uh, you know that uh, but, but is that i i, I kind of, I, I was annoyed by that at first but actually maybe i, I quite like that now in a weird perverse way yeah, Paradise Killer did that, and it, for me, it was un unforgivable in Paradise Killer. But, <laughs> but for some reason, I think it it is more insable. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's that contemplative, you know. If you, yeah, mm. I th oh, I think because insable, I mean, it, it sets out its stool as a, as a tootling game. You know, right, tootling yeah, is right, the right. is the verb de jour. Whereas there's not much time for tootling in Paradise Killer. You've got to catch a catch a murderer. Uh, yeah. So you wouldn't necessarily think about doing whatever ridiculous interaction it was in order to be able to double jump. Oh, you had to dip um, in a flipping pond or something. It was, <laughs> yeah. I think it was literally a hot pond you had to go in. Yeah, and there that was, that was unforgivable bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about, like, you made the comparison much earlier, but obviously a lot of Sable's, like, fundamental mechanics just in terms of the controls are, and the climbing are inspired, or feel inspired by Breath of the Wild. And I think, you know, talking about that game... Um, the thing that is different, though, I think, is the massive breadth of mechanics and yeah. activities. Sandbox dynamism. Yeah, mm. and things to discover at landscapes. Because it's not like Breath of the Wild has a million enemy types or something like that. Or it's just got a lot of careful variety in its landscapes. And your tool set for travel interacts with basic things like physics in an interesting way. In fact, I think Breath of the Wild 
for me had its ups and downs as a travel game because at times where you get like a huge horse and you can just go wherever you like for a bit i have that anxiety of skipping stuff because i can feel the content whizzing past me basically Mm. um and that's a different kind of anxiety to sables which is that sense of like i've got to be okay with the amount of stuff that's here because there's not much but it is pretty (laughs) you know what i mean like that feeling that like i'm not gonna miss anything i might just consume this or itemize it down to a handful of things in my brain too soon before i have chance to fully vibe yeah i think that's i think the point of the game though is to try and break down that that instinct to itemize content Mm. because in the way that it is so asymmetric in the way it's distributed in the way that it, it it actually makes secret things that would normally be kind of highlight content um the fact that you can just stumble across something that would be you know uh a communal garden tomb puzzle in a tomb raider game and it's just a complete one-off there's no reason that you should visit that place uh and you've just discovered something about the world i think it's it's attempting to sort of you know uh go against the grain of these things of seeing them as uh mechanisms that can be compartmentalized into different categories you know the the idea that you know it's got these back of the box bullet point mechanics Mm. like it's 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 sort of trying to undermine that i think a little bit or maybe it's just budget could be either (laughs) we just return to the same point of i'm not vibing whose fault is this yeah (laughs) is it mine is it is it the fault of budget is it the fault of yeah yeah Yeah, exactly it's tough it's tough I tell you what, I, I, one thing I really do love about it though is the sound design. I think mm. it's just absolutely mm. su- superb noises, <laughs> really good. I mean, it has some kind of ex-diegetic uh, music, uh, which is really nice. But just the ambiance of stuff is is really great. I have this um, this outfit uh, which has a big rucksack on its back with a bunch of crystals in it, um, and you, we, I've made my stance on giant crystals in science fiction very clear. Uh, on this podcast in the past but despite that like just the sound of the rucksack's content jingling as you run is just really delightful it's like this really it's like a really wet bell <laughs> it, it, it's it may be the wettest bell that i've what ever does seen a wet bell sound like delicious that's what it sounds like that's awesome. <laughs> i can imagine it in my head and yeah it sounds awesome i don't i can't weird. am i having some like issue with like a fantasia here like it's like imagine a dry jangle but <laughs> okay but splashy oh oh like a splashy standing it's, <laughs> it's almost like a, a mixture of a splosh and you know those uh those bells that look like a bunch of grapes yes it's like a mixture of a splosh and one mm. of those it's really wet it's a wet bell chris that, that sounds delicious <laughs> you've got to tinkle that wet bell mate i've got to keep going with this game so i can jingle Great. Well, um, we got to the good, bottom of it eventually. Analysis chaps. <laughs> I think. I think it, just to give you an update, I think your little bike kept just going up into the sky on this particular jump, um, and never to land. To, yeah, to to jingle wetly in the firmament, um, <laughs> <laughs> vanishing into the sun like Team Rocket, but with a faint jingle jangle. Um, yeah, indeed. Well, um, what have you been playing, Meowth? Is that I mean, me? Top. Am I, yeah. <laughs> am I, am I meowth? Yeah, sorry. Have you, you made me meowth like just that like was, that? It was it was needlessly mean, and I you just, I you am just sorry. went you just went went right there, and I, I 
I, I accept it. Um, I've been, <laughs> I've been playing uh, oh a few things actually. I think I'll, let's just talk very briefly about Diablo Two Resurrected. Let's do it. That, apparently, I've talked about Diablo. I don't know, God knows how many hours, Diablo Three, Diablo Two, various things on the podcast. Um, I thought I would uh, give this a thumbs up as a remaster that, unlike Warcraft Three, didn't ruin a load of the fundamentals <laughs> that would uh, that inevitably would irritate long term fans of the thing. Um, and the sort of like visual upgrade, audio visual upgrade is received. I think it's as I don't know what more you could ask for. Really, it's just it looks gorgeous on my. Um, like 4K tally with the PS4, it looks great on my PC, and crucially, cross progression. Uh, you can save mm-hmm. it to on one thing, pick it up on another thing, and I think this is like quite a privileged thing to be very pleased with. As <laughs> which I think, like for, for game journalists, former game journalists, media games media people, it just seems like an incredible thing because they've had to do that a lot and been frustrated by that lack of thing. But I think. As consoles become kind of media hubs for the front room, the ability to pick that up and take it to perhaps to a PC, and I'm not sure this works with Diablo Resurrected actually, but perhaps take it to the Switch or something else or another mm. device you have or a, even like a phone or something. I think this is kind of uh, a future that I, uh, was envisioned long ago by executives high up in various uh, people creating consoles. Um still hasn't quite materialized and that i utterly resented at the time but now in the kind of 21st century i have a bunch of devices universe i live in in my particular world i, I think i do value that enormously the ability to sort of pick up a game and have it not be tied to a particular platform and there's a, a weird freedom to that not just because i own loads of the platforms but it's because i could own any one of those platforms and have this experience and i think that's pretty cool you make one game and then everyone gets to potentially experience it i think diablo is simple enough in its interactions and it, it, you could tap it on the screen on a, a touch screen and it will work um and it you don't need a mouse really uh, and actually like uh blizzard has solved a, a lot of the kind of interface problems with action rpgs i think with diablo 3 that's been retroactively applied to diablo 2 resurrected uh, that on the PS4 it feels great too. The menus are still quite clunky in terms of actually getting equipment onto your character and seeing and comparing kit and gear. But just actually moving around and shooting spells off and doing the fun stuff that you could just do uh, uh, to enjoy a typical playthrough or a bit of a grind. Uh, I think it's it's really solid, and I think for all those reasons, it's it's a, it's actually a nice upgrade. Even though I think the design of the thing feels to me. The pacing of the game feels extremely sluggish, particularly uh, in the way that the characters develop each of the classes. I've played like three or four of them, just um, going in and getting to level six. Level six is a big kind of milestone in Diablo 2 because that's where you start to get your area of effect abilities for a lot of characters. Uh, and there are characters that are designed for co-op or multiplayer, and they just kind of fail to shine unless you have a group. And the game never mm-hmm. tells you that, really. So, uh, like, the druid has loads of auras, loads of spirits and sprites that can actually, you know... Uh, the, the I think it's called... Oh, the paladin also has loads of auras and things that are designed to empower a group. And if you kind of look at the select character select screen, you say, oh, that's a cool knight, I'll pick him. As a solo experience, I feel as though it could do a lot more to be... Like, have an explicit line <laughs> that says, mm-hmm. play this guy if you... If, you're, if you want to play solo... 
hey, play the sorceress and just pick ice magic until level six and then do what you want, uh, which is done because like, actually, perhaps you want to redesign the game so it's not like that. But if you're doing this kind of weird nostalgic resurrection thing, you almost kind of, I think, want to be as faithful as possible while also setting expectations for modern players as to what is about to happen if you pick a thing. <laughs> because those games from that era just aren't very forgiving if you pick a wrong thing or you pick a wrong right. uh, you know, the path of the skill tree that actually if you choose to play a certain way, perhaps solo, perhaps in multiplayer, that might actually kind of make um, for a much more frustrating experience and there's no way you could possibly tell at all by looking at the game for me this is a perennial problem with loads of rpgs where the, one of the most difficult things is to flag what skills are going to do for your character in terms of actual playstyle on what you're you know what you're actually literally moment to moment going to be doing with that character uh into the mid game and late game uh so if i pick a wizard basically a lot of games are just like they might show you like a, a split second video or a kind of a character as in Diablo 2 where they take a stance and do a cool thing and you're like, here's the fantasy, is the visual fantasy of what's go- going to happen. But actually the mechanical fantasy is never explained until you put right. 10 hours into the game. And then, and then there's a significant likelihood you've been let down and now you're just bored and stuck and you've paid money for a thing that's really irritating when they're actually like, they're, there are good experiences in the game for you to find, but the game never tells you what they are. Uh, because like there's, there isn't like almost two sentences at the start that says amazing for solo players if you want to decimate hordes with lightning power uh, in hell further down the line this will let you do this why not just say that it, mm-hmm. why should that be a secret um, so I think that there's kind of loads of stuff particularly with RPGs and, and systems where it's never put into human language that people can understand and actually pass and you know uh, I, 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 and I think there's a lot of value put into the idea of the skill tree where you put in points, but you can never respec. And that that's somehow kind of like a purist's idea of a good RPG system. Uh, whereas actually, it's just sabotaging new players, I think. Like most of the time, it's just it's giving new players choices that they don't have the information to actually, you know, uh, pick the choice that will be better for them. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think mm. I think Diablo Two is such an important game for this whole thing in two ways. One, you have the branch where people realize those permanent choices are not what's interesting about gearing a character for difficult content. Because I think difficulty matters. Difficulty of content matters a lot here. Um, so most modern MMOs of any kind or kind of co-op RPGs let you respec whenever you want, and the challenge becomes either progressing your characters to give yourself broader options or to picking the right things for the challenge you're doing. That's how Destiny works. That's how it all works. And then the other side of Diablo 2's legacy, I think, is very much closer to, like, clicker games, right? Because a big mm. part of Diablo is, like, I click, I get thing. Thing go, number go up. Occasionally number go enough up enough that I get to click plus on a different number. And then that number goes up and I don't fucking care what any of it means because I'm playing on easy <laughs> and nothing will ever matter. Like, but that is satisfying. And I think people identified that like, cause I think when I was a kid playing Diablo two, I didn't give a shit if my build was optimized. I liked leveling up. I didn't know what it was going to do, but I probably never, I never even tried to play on the difficulty settings where my mistakes would have any consequences for me. I just blew up skeletons with my necromancer for hours and I think that 
that satisfaction and the fact that we maybe would even feel guilty about saying like guess what all the game design didn't all the kind of um progression design didn't matter that much to my experience is what then leads to the genre of rpgs that's just like do what you like and we'll make the numbers go up um because you like that as well yeah so there's a few things to this so uh respecking feels to me like a very brute force solution to this mm -hmm. whereas actually i think the way it's portrayed or the way it's perceived among players and, and this might just be anecdotal to me but it feels like i have failed in my character development if i have to choose a respec and often that's accentuated by the fact that these games make you pay for it with currency not not real life currency well perhaps in some games uh but uh in actual you know oh gold you need a certain amount of gold to respec there needs to that suggests it's a punishment right you've mm -hmm. you've done something wrong and now you have to all your accrued wealth needs to go into fixing the thing you've messed up um whereas i think in a lot of those occasions like that you there was no way you could possibly have known you would could were messing up you were just right. doing the fun thing at the time and now you're being punished and that's the trouble with the end game content i i and um i get that like, you could play double on an easy level but even then i think this is also quite a, a reason why that double to those old games those old, old rpgs are very dated it's because a lot of the language around easier difficulty levels was more like oh you don't want to do the cool thing oh I, yeah right oh i would say oh um oh you don't want the real challenge and uh even modern games like wolf the wolfenstein remakes have fun with this ironically mm -hmm. but i think for a brand new player coming into it it's not ironic like if you make mm -hmm. literally um blaskovich is you're showing Blaskovich's face when you're selecting difficulty levels in the modern Wolfenstein reboots, which I really, really like as games. I think they're brilliant. But if you go to a low difficulty, you get almost like a crying Blaskovich's face where he's bleeding everywhere. And he's just like... Don't you get uh, baby Blaskovich on the lower ones? Isn't he like, oh, like a yeah, dummy in like, his mouth and a little bib? A little which bonnet. is like... I, th yeah. I think it's, I think that was created with like the intent... It's ironic intent, right? Like, yeah, it, right. It, it's kind of... Um, from our perspective, playing loads of games, that's kind of uh, making it evidently absurd that that's how you portray that difficulty level. But for I think you've just got, always got to make games for new players. I think like whenever you're mm. presenting these things, you've got to present them for the person who's completely new to this thing, wants this cool new experience. They've heard cool things about Diablo, they've heard cool things about Wolfenstein, and now so and they drop down, and it's a split second decision, right? The difficulty level you pick. And you don't necessarily know you can change it. So uh, the game's getting much better at saying that you can or can't. But then you you select it, and then it's kind of the game's judging you already based on what you're doing, right. based on the imagery and the way it's presented. Um, and I think when you maintain the aesthetic of those old games, or even just ironically comment on them, you still do a disservice to new players because you, you kind of actually playing those games on easy is obviously completely fine, and you get to see as much of the game as you want to on that level and i don't know did, did i think that make sense yeah it does and i think but i think what's something that's interesting because the question that occurred to me was i agree with you always make games as if they're someone's first game to some extent however i was like do you make diablo 2 remastered as if it's someone's first game it's got the and package I, right yeah and yeah because there's that sense of like and then what are your obligations is your obligation to offer a wholly authentic experience of what you know Diablo 2 was like so that people who missed it at the time get to have that authentic experience or is it to offer an idealized version of that experience 
if you're making an idealized version of that experience, how come you're not just making Diablo three or Diablo four at this point? And and I think the I think the answer is you don't change the fundamental systems. You respect what they were, you leave them as they are. But and you said it earlier, but what you'd probably do is as part of that remastering, maybe even optionally, provide some of the commentary that a new player needs in order to appreciate what they're seeing. Because I think you know, there's, you know, for, for I'm trying to imagine the person whose first Diablo game ever is Diablo 2 remastered, right? Rather than jumping into Diablo 3 or any other action RPG or, and, and I think, or Titan Quest or something like that. And I think, uh, not Titan Quest, what do I mean? Um, Path of Exile. And, um, and I think it would have to be out of kind of historical curiosity, right? And I think, so to that extent, you almost have to have almost like the museum function, which couples as a tutorial where it's like, hey, this is a game that lets you make one-way decisions that affect how your character plays. If you want to be guided through this so you don't, you know, subvert your own experience, check this box. And then every time you level up, we will hover a little tooltip over your various options to say, put your point here if you want to stay focused on solo content. Put your point here if you want to play with your friends, etc. And I think... Yeah, just editorializing and contextualizing. That's what I mean. Or, yeah, uh, yeah. Just I, I don't know how you do that moment to moment. I think that's kind of a cool idea. Actually, having those tall tips pop up and say, you know, um, and there, there are ways to deliver that tone and be like, hey, this is great for this, but without such, saying this is uh, the, the the chronic problem with these is that oh, this is the weak option or this is the strong. <laughs> yeah, this one. You know a, I mean? This one's a mistake. <laughs> this is this is a, a, just a, the original designers messed this one the hell up and yeah. you're never going to use fireball past level 10 or whatever you know uh and perhaps like i mean probably should say that i'd be honest but um uh you'd say other way you'd, you'd say you'd phrase it as oh if you want a real challenge this is a difficult one to make work you need to get some gear to make fireball oh, the lightning yeah whatever uh kind of variance shrink the variance with certain items that i don't know there are ways to do it, it feels like and i think just sort of leaving it out of the world and i think the reason why i think this is particularly relevant to diablo 2 resurrected is because it's laying the groundwork for diablo 4 because right. diablo 4 is an explicit return to the aesthetic of diablo 2 after the backlash that blizzard got from uh diablo 3's presentation and the way that W3 kind of changed a lot of the fundamentals of the game. And obviously there was the whole market thing they tried to do with it, which is obviously yeah. a disaster. Which um, would basically, what if um, NFTs, but somehow <laughs> like... Again, yeah, yeah, yeah um, a even lot worse. execs just kind of predicting the future and trying to make it work before it... People are going to want to make money from this somehow, some way. Um, if we enable that, it wasn't that. Cut, then, it wasn't yeah. that. No, they missed that. They uh, missed the mark enormously. And um, uh, the the turnaround, by the way, on that, um, this is probably for another episode, but it's extraordinary. It was such <laughs> a fundamental part of the entire game's itemization <laughs> to them for them to just sort of like take it out. Uh, it is an absolutely mammoth task, and I can't believe they did it. I do like I like the game as well. Especially where it is yeah. now with Reaper of Souls, I think it's it's a it's a really cool action RPG. But um, that, that's besides the point. I, th- I think it's just a, it's kind of like an onboarding versus nostalgia problem. Um, and the reason why it's relevant now is because I think there might actually be kind of ultimate pre-order rewards for Diablo Four if you play Diablo Two. I need to check that, but I th- I, it feels like the sort of thing Blizzard would do. <laughs> um, right. 
or at least the, the release of this is a way of kind of reestablishing the Diablo fan base in preparation for Diablo 4. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas Diablo 4 may have a lot of the kind of gritty aesthetic of Diablo 2, but will it repeat the design? Uh, I'm just going to say mistakes of the original. <laughs> no game is perfect. There are like uh, paths yeah. you can take through Diablo 2 that are deeply unsatisfying and irritating and result in a, a, You can make a terrible assassin character. You just you can just have a, just a terrible trap assassin character that doesn't do anything. It can kill an individual boss in seconds, but can't face swarms. There's stuff like that in the game, uh, and there's stuff like that in W3 as well, with like certain barbarian builds. There's a point where there's a skill for barbarian, which is whirlwind, which is a is a classic one. Um, and whirlwind is was just incredible at high levels. But it's the most boring way to play. Just held down the two key, and your guys span around. And if you have the right optimization. <laughs> Uh, everything around him died, and you do that for hours to grind content in the right parts of the game. It's like, is this is this what we want? <laughs> is this what we want for this? Actually, a game a game series I deeply love, and I've had amazing times with, especially with friends uh, playing, going to one dungeon runs and stuff. But I, I don't know. If that I one go... is another classic case of whose fault is this? Like, uh, you know what I mean? Like, I've spent the last three hours holding two. Whose fault not, is this? You're not wrong, but I know I've done it in Destiny. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> I've done it in games. And maybe it is, uh, maybe it is BioBeware. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, don't. Just, if you're going into a bad experience, but you're getting progression, perhaps analyze for a moment. No one is making you spin your barbarian, is what we're saying. Oh, no, they're not, but. You but are they? To, right? Mm. There's a sunk cost fallacy as well, where if you put so many hours into this character already, you want to get them to the very top, and the only viable way at the very high difficulty level is to do this stupid spinning thing. You might well do it. I don't know. You're right. Yeah, though. that's not necessarily the game designer's fault at that point. Anyway, I feel like I've rambled a lot there. Um, no, no. It's it's. I think I think you are the resident person whose opinions on Diablo uh, need to be heard. Yeah, and also I'm very happy to be turbo criticised by. I, I, it's weird, I, like having moved out of kind of games media and stuff, I haven't been like incredibly just over criticised to an almost ridiculous, arrestable mm. level for a for an opinion for a long time. And as much as I was annoyed by that, I kind of miss it. So well, all I'm saying is, come at me, folks. <laughs> do at him. Do at me now. Determine whose fault it is for yourself, but make sure it's Tom. Um, I suppose I should talk about what I've been playing, perhaps. Absolutely. Marsh? Sounds like a plan. Oh, mm. good. Sorry, I might have killed you with Diablo talk there for <laughs> 20 no. minutes. <laughs> I apologise. I don't know how many takes I have on this because I'm sure I'll return to it. But uh, as of today, I've been I've been playing a bit of Battlefield 2042. Ooh, uh, the I'm open beta just started. Yeah, um, I got excited as well, partly because of an excellent trailer. Um, they have put out this open beta, which is one map from its 128-player conquest mode, which is the traditional um, Battlefield capture point, takeover map, big war mode. Um, the map is a, I have no idea what it's called, but it's like a, uh, space base, like a spaceship launch facility. 
um, uh, on the coast uh, with rolling hills, these big kind of like, you know, obvious like little towns um, and this one massive launch site. And um, I'm really enjoying it so far. It's really like the trailer promised effectively like this mix of every other Battlefield experience. And I think it is, is, is playing heavily into nostalgia for what that game, particularly Battlefield 3, was. While definitely having these cameo appearances from more or less every feature I can remember in the series, so um, like first and foremost, um, for me, it's it's definitely succeeded at the thing that Battlefield has always been out and out best at, which is the sense of scale. And like, even though you traverse the map quite quickly uh, in, in your helicopter or whatever, the the sense of place when you're on the ground is you know, really substantial. There's a million things that go into that. The sound design is amazing. Like just things like coming down from like over a hill and then under a tree canopy, the sound profile changes. You hear more birds. You kind of like the, just the, if if it wasn't so loud all the time, you would definitely have more time to appreciate just how much work goes into making all those environments feel super distinct. Um, It has a bunch of the, building and sort of subtle terrain deformation stuff that was in uh, a bunch of the games, including Bad Company, I believe. So you're seeing the impact of shells hitting buildings in the environment, not to the extent of bringing whole parts of the, you know, uh, level down or anything like that, but enough that it has that sense of kind of like impact and the significance of things happening. Um, you have this, the the weather can change dramatically, like having played the map a couple of times. Sometimes it is sunny, sometimes it is raining. The rain looks and sounds amazing. Like when it starts raining and you're in a vehicle, like the interior ambience of the vehicle changes in a way that is like spot on all of this stuff. Like, you know, DICE have always been good at this. They applied this to Battlefront as well for Star Wars. Like it just, that sense of uh, um, being present in this big action sandbox is, is very, very impressive. It has then the, some of the Battlefield 4 stuff, like these big level changing moments of spectacle, like a huge tornado that sets down in the middle of the map and starts tearing things up and completely changing the kind of landscape of play. It has... Uh, about halfway through the match or like towards the end of the match, I'm not sure exactly what the trigger is, uh, the rocket takes off. Like what starts at the beginning of the map as this big kind of like enclosed uh, rocket box, I guess, the rocket box, kind of, uh, you know, skyscraper-sized <laughs> rocket box, like unfolds to reveal the rocket. And then the rocket, like eventually at one point takes off and like there's a whole like massive area beneath the rocket, these kind of like, um, sort of big blast zones that you could have a tank battle in. They're so big that will just get flooded with fire and smoke as a whole part of the map kind of gets kind of engulfed in smoke. The rocket takes off and, and moves into the sky. Cool. Can you get on the rocket? You, uh, someone's done it. You can climb on top of the <laughs> rocket. You die eventually, <laughs> but yeah, you can. But then right. the other thing is, I think if, um, cause it's like the US versus the Russians. And I think if the Russians hold the rocket facility when it tries to launch, it explodes instead. And that has a completely different effect. Like you just massive explosion, like rocket parts flailing across the map. It's, 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 it's genuine, like, you know, big, you know, big trailer moments, the game basically. And then within that you have kind of battlefield itself, which is, I think I've always felt the battlefield is like two games. There's the game that people get good at where they know how to win a game of battlefield, which for me feels like often this, you know, I feel like in a game of battlefield, I play, for the 40 minutes it takes for the map to end or the half an hour it feels like ages 
and I go on like my series of little adventures and maybe we win and maybe we lose. And occasionally I've played a battlefield game enough to know how to thread my little adventures together in such a way that they help anyone at any time. Otherwise, you must be the only battlefield player. I don't think so, because the impression I get from playing Battlefield is that everyone else in the world is four times better at Battlefield than me. And I play, like, a lot of shooters, like, all the time. Like, you know, shooters is the main genre I play, really, if you factor in, like, Destiny and thing. And I feel rubbish at Battlefield constantly. Like, um, you know, it is a game... And and so there's, like... um, And and sometimes I feel like the grand strategy of it is kind of beyond me. Um, But what I do get are these little sort of action moment and i've had a bunch of them already like um racing across the hills in a a two-person recon vehicle manning the minigun on top getting into like car chases and you know uh then crashing into the front of a tank and praying it doesn't see us because its turret is facing the other way and we hope the driver is distracted only to find out lethally that he wasn't he could in fact see us and we were about about to die um to like uh, crawling on my belly through the through the undergrowth and getting out my character's little EM little drone that has an EMP on it and using that EMP to shoot a hind helicopter whose distracted pilot then crashed directly into the side of a building and exploded. Like like these little things that happen in these games and they've built marketing material around this premise that like your experience in a battlefield game is just about kind of garnering these little adventures with your mates and I think. I'm, that, it's really promising. I'm glad I pre-ordered it. I'm looking forward to to getting that. I do struggle, I think, but I appreciate it's super early days to climb above that to the point where my kind of actions in the game feel a bit more intentional and like I'm changing the overall outcome of this otherwise. Like it's that tension between like, is this a competitive experience or is this using the framework of a competitive experience to tee up a bunch of individually cool explosions basically um right yeah i mean that's that's always been my experience of battlefield admittedly i haven't played many of the recent ones i haven't played the star wars battlefield games mm. but they've always been great generators for moment to moment chaos and really only nominally in a, a match-based scenario like i mean i don't remember ever feeling any kind of way at all about how a match concluded or whether we won or lost that seems almost by the by to right. what was happening in the moment and my experience of other battlefield players is that they similarly do not care because they will they will almost never pursue objectives in a way which would further any kind of strategic goal but simply you know play in a way which indulges their own um gilly suited sniping fantasies um which is fine that's fine i'll i'll you know drop a plane on them that's okay um, yeah but does this do a better job of kind of threading those things together into a larger kind of strategic goal? They've definitely made changes, and I can talk to what they are, because, like, what I, I'm, it's too early for me to say, yes, this has succeeded. What I can see is, like, they have done some things. And, you know, let's see what it all means. Like, um, there's a... So they have seemingly loosened up the kind of class system quite significantly. So you still have a class, but you pick a it's strange you pick a character now like the old classes are now like you know named characters as if this were basically any game in the modern era that has operators or heroes or champions or you know that kind of thing um they're all people who are in the army but this has the strange effect of meaning that both sets of characters i think are on both sides so while you are um playing as the americans for example 
um all of the characters are from all sorts of different parts of the world so it has this kind of like team rainbow feeling of like well i guess i guess we're the american army but i guess we're also just people who are in armies um but the russian side is exactly the same your you know your kind of commander voiceover we are losing the game type guy will be speaking with a russian accent but everyone else is just whoever from wherever which again feels kind of odd but nonetheless you have all this freedom to customize your loadout far more than previous so you can be the sniper character but that basically just means you get the drone and you know you can run around with a sniper rifle and be a medic if you want or take a close quarters weapon on the sniper or or whatever and then each of them have access to some things that are specifically theirs like the drone or the defibrillator or in the case of the assault class now the grappling hook um which creates some very silly additional battlefield spectacle people kind of like pulling them pulling themselves up to helicopters i, I was trying to land a huge vtol um in a base and a, a enemy soldier grappled onto the wing of my vtol and i managed to spin the vtol such that the physic caused him to like slingshot around and then just f- fly off into the wilderness <laughs> like like, like a, a tour of <laughs> yeah exactly like he I was, just, I was like whoop oh, and, I, and like i sort of whipped him past me and he was like just gone and i was like okay that was his little <laughs> battlefield moment um um, and but you have all this additional freedom to pick your weapon and, and kind of customize that stuff. I think that's probably good for making sure that you can mix and match play styles with the needed classes in a more interesting way. The, one of the big new features is the actual gun customization, like what scope do I want? What clip do I want? What barrel do I want? Is no longer a like pre-game or mid-game loadout menu thing. You literally press T at any time while you're running around. Your character holds the gun sideways and the menu comes up and you just change things live. Like you can, you know, be running, you can be running across a hill, switch your assault rifle into a kind of like single shot, four times scope, you know, um, sort of marksman rifle mode, get to the little town you're planning to infiltrate, switch it into, you know, with a red dot sight. And now you're ready for like close quarters. And and that feels like quite cool, actually. I think, I think Crisis did that. Yeah, it does feel like Crisis, actually. Yeah. But actually, I've not seen it in many multiplayer. Many uh, multiplayer shooters actually got to put that into live multiplayer action. That's kind of neat. It is neat. I think in the in the beta you have like every option unlocked, so I think initially it's a bit overwhelming. Um, but I think it all kind of come together, particularly as you. Or maybe it's always like that. I'm not quite sure. Um, but those things feel like they're they're intended to um, kind of encourage you to be constantly making decisions about how you're going to approach given situations. And I think they've also made some changes to the structure of the map. So it's not just like point B is over here, point D is over there. Like there are sectors and the sectors have the letter assigned to them. So this is sector A or sector B. And a sector may have one or more capture points within it. And control Uh of the whole sector, I think, is what matters. So that creates this thing where it's like, you know, there are two capture points in sector D and you split control of it. So that then becomes like a really natural flashpoint for combat. Um. And I still think you then might have your entire game revolve around effectively like a team deathmatch capture point game between these two points in this one part of the map, and you may not even go anywhere else than that game, and that's fine. I think it's part of the part of the, the appeal of Battlefield to have like concurrent battles happening in different places, and occasionally the kind of moving fronts cause you know something happening in one area literally causes like the, the butterfly effect, uh, you know a. a a consequence for somewhere else and then the the aircraft and the faster vehicles are the ones that get to ply multiple theaters of conflict that that i think is the game that's most promising but it also requires players to kind of bed in and commit 
to, to indi- individual conflicts and they don't always, right? Um, they seem to have done a good job to more fairly parcel out access to things like helicopters and jets, um, or both of which feel very much as they did in previous Battlefield games. Jets feel still, still feel weird. Like they, they're definitely far too slow um, for the size of the map they're in. They haven't solved that problem, but it's still cool to be a jet and see a jet fly past and blow up a helicopter. Looks good. Um, so I like all of that stuff. Um, yeah, I, I definitely, um, I'm, I'm going to play some more, maybe even after we've recorded tonight. And I, I, I'm kind of glad I got it on pre-order because I think, you know, it's kind of exactly what I wanted it to be, which is a fancy new Battlefield, but it's fundamentally Battlefield. Um, I do want to say one thing about it before I stop talking about it, which is, um, I think, I don't think it's the first Battlefield game to do this, but they have definitely um, uh, democratized um resurrection right when you're when you die now when you get killed you are downed and anyone can revive you it's just that medics or people with with defibrillators do it faster um or instantaneously rather than the old thing of like no one wants to play a medic but you know the team desperately needs them um but in a game that is otherwise like full of like um some pretty high fidelity um spectacle the animation for being downed is, I think, unintentionally funny, um, where basically it doesn't matter how brutally you were kind of taken out, blown up with a grenade, or you might ragdoll for a bit and roll across the ground, or you were shot in the head by some dude, or a helicopter strafed you, or a tank fell on you, or whatever it was. Your character will then roll around limply and hypothetically on their back from side to side, sort of grasping futilely in the air, like... Oh, yeah. like yeah. And, 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 and the, the experience of walking into a room where a gunfight has just taken place with casualties on both sides <laughs> is a bit like being a really unprofessional, like, um, like being like a parent walking back into a crash to discover that all of the toddlers <laughs> have fallen over and they're all crying and you're like, Oh fuck, what do I do now? Cause the, it's, it's, I think it's supposed to be desperate and the characters do scream like, don't let me die. Oh, help. <laughs> um, but all, but the gesture and the pose is far more like mother. I have fallen. Mother oh, help. Uh, there, it's there, great. Are, there are two solutions. Um, perhaps to like previous Batfield games, the last two where they can either, beef up the animations or just draw an outline over every suffering individual who is dying on the battlefield yeah. uh, using a shader and it feels like they've gone for the more question mark immersive <laughs> <laughs> option yeah there's just a lot of like i mean people will hold space to respawn immediately and also when you do that your character just dies so they go from this pose <laughs> of like oh mother oh mother quentin ate all of my birthday cake to uh and just like falling asleep, and um, then they get they get a, a quote about how war is horrible. <laughs> that is that that, that like, at least yeah. is gone. Yeah, um, it's good. Um, I, had, I was wondering actually, like how the personally, like one of the things I missed about Battlefield three and four is that I think the sort of speculative, slightly future modern era of warfare yeah. is a good place for it to be, and this is a return to that after the last few. Uh, yes. So I wondered, like, how that kind of does that feel? Is that more interesting? It, it, it definitely. I think it it's a, it is the thing that helps it feel more like kind of the last couple of battlefields I connected to. It's interesting because obviously it's set in twenty forty two, but it feels like they've had their pick of like we're gonna take we're gonna take all of the vehicles that you want from the modern era, and we're gonna make them all a little bit clancy, a little bit fancy, a little bit clancy. Like this is like a super hind versus a mega Apache versus 
uh, F thirty five Turbo Ultimate Edition, um, or whatever. And you know, um, um, but it's all very familiar. But it's got enough of that like future thing, so that you get the cool robot dog, or the um, like the Boston Dynamics Battle Dog, or like I say, the EMP drone, and all these like you get like these like little um uh scanner grenades that you can throw into a room to ping everyone who's inside it and these little touches that that definitely i think help give you a variety of ways to interact with the world that weren't necessarily present in um the world war one game for example which had to strip things back but that had its own benefits and the the the, obviously the thing about um 2042 is through the portal mode you can play in world war ii mode if you want so because they're they're doing that as well which is which is crazy so um you know i think but it it does it does feel um i think that's one of the things that feels comfortingly familiar in a way is like and one of the things that roots it so much in that experience of playing like battlefield 2 specifically as a as a teenager is is that return to a kind of quasi-modern era um one thing is like i don't i don't know how you know because it doesn't have a single player and there doesn't appear to be much of it like a story which i'm glad of i don't know sort of like um i'm not sure why it benefits from these sort of big factional divisions even it does feel like such a big play you know like a big box of toys basically like a big box of faintly modern military toys that i think it's occasional gestures at like well this is the russian army and this is the u.s army feel a bit sort of off in a way hmm. but maybe that does help kind of distinguish things the most um sci-fi thing in it is the vtol transport which is like a kind of an osprey crossed with the like an alien dropship basically um aliens dropship i should say um but yeah beyond that like the guns you're carrying are like this is a this is an AK forty seven from the future, right? Like it's not it's not so near future that it it, it leaves that behind totally. I, I really wish the series would do a kind of ace combat and just get away mm. from America versus Russia. <laughs> I mean, mm. uh, are we trying to like you know imply that the Cold War is going to last until twenty forty two and whatever one intentions might exist? It feels as though the game could easily just divest itself of that stuff i think that coupled with the fact that because you're playing these characters that like i think the there's like one who's like a older lady who is german i think um and the the sniper is south african i think and these are the same characters regardless of what side you're on as far as i can tell it, it that layer of like big geopolitical conflict doesn't actually feel very earned at the moment we could be rival mercenary companies right like rival pmcs or they could do the innumerable ace combatish ways as you say to say like oh oh there was a big we changed the names of all the countries and the flags yeah oh, it, we've got I fighter know. planes meow it feels a bit unnecessary at the moment yeah. like to really dial in on that for reasons i don't know why you would like no one it wouldn't matter if you just changed the names got them like no no one's playing this as a uh, a modern actual you know history game <laughs> right right so why actually evoke all of the actual countries i don't know maybe, maybe. i like the space rocket when it blows up that sounds That's, fun yeah is the infantry stuff still ground-based i was wondering with the like the addition of the grappling hook and the, the sort of wingsuit and all that stuff whether it's actually kind of going to play a lot more like titanfall or 
uh, whatever cod game that um, was that was set in the future where you had magic legs uh i don't feel like i've got magic legs i think i think it is it's slightly more vertical than it was but not tremendously so because battlefield has always been a game about falling out of a plane to get where you want to go so um it doesn't you it doesn't feel like I've, I've definitely seen already like on twitter like people doing trick shots by like grappling up to a roof and dropping some grenades on the people defending it and stuff so it has that element it doesn't feel like the focus in a way that it was in um titanfall for example not least because the grapple for example is a weapon you have to equip it's not like you can't like as far as I can tell, yeah. I don't think you'd like grapple around while like holding your gun in the other hand or whatever. Um, you know, it is, it's more of a repositioning tool. Um, Sounds cool though. Yeah. I think it'd be a fun thing to jump into and, and play all together. Just go for an adventure. See where our Jeep takes us. Yeah. Shall we take some questions? questions? Or one? We should take, let's do one question. We'll do one question this week because it's actually a big subject a special subject that we all want to talk about really badly. So um, we're going to answer one question because uh, I, I would like to wish someone well, basically. Yeah. So uh, James uh, wrote to us to say, hey there, uh, well, the last thing I wish to do is harsh your collective mellow, uh, looking for advice. I'm due, uh, James writes, to be banged up in bed for a protracted period of time following major surgery and chemo slash radiotherapy. Uh, PC gamer of long standing. So what's the solution, please? Buy a handheld thing or a console for TV in the bedroom. That's Steam whatnot. Guess I'm finally going to have to time to box set the Wire Sopranos, etc. Also lined up Kane's Jawbone as a long-term project. Don't know if that's on your radar. Mostly a strategy gamer if that's relevant. Thanks to the pod, James. So first and foremost, hope all that goes well. Absolutely. Obviously. And, and, and you know, best wishes for the recovery. To the subject of um, games to play while uh, horizontal for a protracted period of time. There is no greater expert that I could think of than you, Tom. Well, as one who has played in a hot bath perilously to my own health at many <laughs> points, uh, playing portably uh, for ex- ex- hours on end, uh, I can only recommend uh, the Switch. Nintendo Switch is an uh, exceptional handheld device that, given, uh, you know, it, it meets uh, Nintendo's classic standard of being a thing that's almost invincible. I once had, like, one of the very old game boys one of the original game boys that uh just went through a washing machine by accident once uh and admittedly came out with one pixel wide stripe of dead uh dead air on the screen but uh i could still play mortal Kombat as long as i wasn't the character playing on the left <laughs> and uh, uh, unfortunately for the the game boy uh it's only about five pixels wide, <laughs> that screen. So it was, it was somewhat of a problem. But these days, not so much. And as long as you're kind of like just reclining and you're not in a watery environment that could electrocute you or the, destroy the device at any moment, then the Switch is exceptional. The uh, the range of not just uh, first-party Nintendo games, but just there's this extraordinary range of third-party games that have been ported to the Switch that I think is unmatched in Nintendo's history. I'm used to Nintendo being quite a closed system, if you're getting into it, even though their portals portables have been excellent over the years. The Switch, for me, is kind of a breakout moment for that whole ecosystem. And uh, it's you could just get just a, such a huge, wide variety of games, whether you want to play shmups. Um, you've got fantastic tactics games like... Oh, the one with the robots and the bugs coming up from under the ground... 
Uh, uh, Tom Francis is spinning in his house. Um, uh, I can um, see his face like a skull uh, emerging. Uh, into the breach. Yes. Into oh, the thank God. <laughs> um, Finally, Canada is stabilized. Exactly. Goodness me, that was close. We almost it was. We almost um, lost Canada, folks. Uh, yeah. Also, um, if you have an Apple device, there's, there's so much good stuff strategy wise on the. Uh, Apple ecosystem these days. Ecosystem, mm. Jesus Christ, ecosystem. Uh, so I've been playing, as you might have heard on re- previous podcasts recently, uh, Fantastic Divinity Originals in two on my iPad, which you do need to have it plugged in because it kills the battery. But uh, it's just an extraordinary tactical RPG um, for all the reasons I discussed with Alex Wiltshire on the podcast, I think a week mm. or two ago. Uh, so th- there's just tremendous scope for portable devices. Yeah, there's some really good strategy stuff on on Switch as well because I think both XCOM, both of the Fraxis XCOM games, were ported to Switch. Uh, so um, Spies yep. so on Switch. Uh, whole Banner Saga is on Switch. Switch um, is, yeah, it's just so good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's not just like you know because obviously there's some extremely Nintendo um, strategy games you could play. I do very much recommend Fire Emblem Three Houses, but it is not to everybody's taste. It depends how much you like tea time. Um, <laughs> uh like if you like advance wars wargroove is pretty good um uh i mean actually oh. mario and rabbit's kingdom the rabbit, was, i was about to suggest yeah that. it's way it's way, really way better than you think it would be um it's actually but it, i think it's that's about 60 percent of that game is good and then it gets re irritating towards the end in my experience but to me especially because you might be able to get it at a cheaper price now because yeah. it's years after release if that's well worth an investment because it's, it's really good fun for a while yeah i think those are all um Good shouts, but I'd also say second the good tablet suggestion as well, like get an iPad or something, because there's a ton of good. Um... Especially if you want to, um, if you're interested in trying out kind of uh, deck building games, there's stuff like Ascension that's mm. really really fun, and you can get that uh, get Ascension and a bunch of its expansions um, for pretty cheap now. I think oh, Civ Six is on Switch as well. It is. Um, yeah, um, yeah. I can't think about. Essentially, without thinking about the weird snake noise that's stuck in my brain now. (laughs) (laughs) One for you to discover and enjoy. (laughs) And never forget. (laughs) It's amazing, though, like portable gaming. Uh, We've got the Steam portable device. I can't remember what it's called coming out early next year. It'll be extremely Mm. limited supply, unfortunately. But uh, I think that I'm actually really quite excited for that because it kind of just takes the extraordinary Steam library and just puts that in your pocket which is yeah quite something um but yeah yeah there's there's plenty plenty of good stuff out there get get a switch get a get an ipad or a, an equivalent tablet and you're good good well and yeah and 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 all best to james we're going to take a, a a bit of a left turn now um to talk about something that i think three of us have been really keen to honk about into a microphone uh, it does mean that we are going to cease being a games podcast at this point and become a uh, film slash uh, medieval romance uh, podcast <laughs> um, <laughs> so that we can talk about The Green Knight, um, the film that finally sort of plonked into cinemas in the UK just now and I think onto streaming as well. Um, uh, the David Lowry film with Dev Patel and co., so if you don't want to hear anything about the Green Knight, the film, um, or indeed you, you're really 
is really spoiler averse and a thousand years old. Um, <laughs> um, um, then obviously this would be the, 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 the point to cease. Uh, before we do that, however, and before we get, get talking about that sweet, sweet pearl, um, uh, I would like to say that, uh, we, collectively the the c and c uh lot have been having some conversations about the pod i know we've said we've been doing this for a while we have actually been doing um talking about uh the format of the podcast and, and how we go about making sure that it's something we can keep doing for uh, as long as possible and, and specifically as consistently as possible because i appreciate that in, in recent months for many reasons but principally availability we've struggled to well we've definitely struggled to hit our weekly schedule but we've also struggled to be consistent within that weekly schedule we definitely want to move on from a point where we have surprise absences in the schedule so we're making some decisions in that regard we have some plans in mind uh not quite ready to say what they are but they shouldn't sound that shouldn't sound too scary the the goal is very much to make sure that we get back onto a track of consistent honking it'll um, be available as an nft oh god don't joke about that <laughs> <laughs> things to not at me about this yeah. um well that obviously not all the recordings no. will be only available as wax cylinders that we've buried in a haunted forest for <laughs> exactly oh no that's basically just some sort of like disruptive geocaching starter <laughs> <laughs> shit um we will we will we will talk about all of it and we will make sure that um you know we we similarly update patreon and so on to make sure they reflect new plans and so on that's about as complicated as i would like to make the process of monetization for this <laughs> frankly um but yeah, um, so yeah, let's 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 open the the box of takes. Yes. Oh, it's been so long to open yes. the box of takes. Oh, no. oh, I'm yeah, I need to. I, I watched it a couple of weeks ago, and um, uh, I've been desperate to talk about it. And I think I was telling you, Chris, that my brain is so atrophied now that that it, waiting like a fortnight to talk about something is like a, a really low stakes version of Memento. <laughs> scribbling on my arm in felt tip his mum is a witch and things like this because i know i'm gonna have just forgotten how significant that is and but uh, anyway um i watched it on a tiny little screen because uh i'm now it's, I, i'm really hyper aware that a film adaptation of the green knight and a film adaptation of dune are probably the two film adaptations that i've been waiting for my entire life <laughs> i know they have been preceding film adaptations of dune but i can't imagine a property that would get me much more kind of excited than either of those um because certainly like this the story of the green knight has been of you know huge significance um to me as as a former medievalist and dune is something my dad read to me as a kid so they yeah. imprinted on me a big and it's weird and painful to me that these two films that i've uh, i can't imagine being more excited by have been released in the one year in which going to the cinema could kill you. So <laughs> I'm I'm now uh, cursed to to watch them on on tiny and hyper reflective laptop screens in which I can see my own face glaring back at me like the fucking Zardoz. Um, <laughs> but yeah, nonetheless, um, should we say what what uh, the yeah. Green Knight well, I think it'd be is. nice. To, yeah, it'd be nice to talk about what it is broadly, and also maybe to talk a bit about because I think because I have quite a personal connection to this to both stories as well. It's interesting. Like Dune is also 
quite personal for me and so is the green note so it'd be interesting to talk about that context as well but um yeah marsh tell us be, be the medievalist for a moment step back and tell us what is <laughs> chivalry what is why chivalry? must, why must wow. we kiss <laughs> <laughs> so because you gave me a fox pelt obviously yeah. um so this is uh an adaptation of a 14th century poem which draws an arthurian myth to tell the troubling tale of knightly heroism or possibly anti-heroism and sort of like the knotty rules of etiquette of the period um shall i say what the shall i uh, how much do i want to spoil about the the, the premise of the 14th century poem i think i think the thi- well for me at least maybe i have a very specific lens on this the thing that is interesting about the film is the ways in which it treats a very well-known st- story not just story but also set of tropes right and so I feel yeah. like we can't really talk about it without talking about what, what those tropes are when it comes to things like uh, decapitation games and, you know, right. so on. So uh, before we do that, before we get into it, like for people who might still be listening, who might want to watch this, could we give like a kind of sketch overview of why it, it's just, why it's worth watching without spoiling any of any of, any of it? Like, Good idea. Why should you watch this? And then we can get, spoiler warning, get into it, do all of it. I'm, relaxing, yes. I'm leaning on you, Marsha. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, uh, whether whether it's for you or not is is a big question. But um, f- for me, the reason you should watch it is because it's it's at, at both simultaneously probably one of the kind of most loyal and literate adaptations of um, a, a medieval fable that I think big cinema has done, and yet it is also uh, an astute updating of that. Um, for a more kind of modern morality um and it's vivid uh lurid it's perhaps even quite camp in places mm-hmm. um but uh to me at least it it had uh, a pretty profound meaning that hinged not only on what was uh, a really dizzyingly beautiful aesthetic but also a central performance by dev patel as frankly a bit of a shit um yeah and how he deals with his shittiness <laughs> is uh I, I think kind of fabulary in uh a real kind of quaint sense of it being it being genuinely a morality tale but also quite a complicated one i don't yeah. think i've necessarily sold it there but <laughs> i think it's, it's also um i found it to be a kind of uh, very visually driven churning nightmare mm. uh about a man in the wilderness on mm. his own uh being subject to forces that uh appear to have a interest in human morals but are ultimately designed to toy with uh, those morals and if you like the idea of uh the knight the, the idea of the noble knight being subverted and played with in interesting ways um with in a very kind of actually what might be what you might find to be quite a ponderous format i think that with beautiful imagery i think this is something worth investigating if you're going in expecting a romp <laughs> i wouldn't say yeah. that this is that it, yeah it's not a it's not a, a, a fantasy film in in the kind of big action fantasy that you might expect it's not yeah, Lord it, of the rings for sure ridley scott didn't do this one no thank god it's truly the dark souls of films I think. <laughs> oh god <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So that was just an act of violence. Completely. <laughs> <That> was, <yeah. laughs> um, 
I think that's probably enough. Like, I think if, if that's piqued your interest, then you probably stop listening if you don't want to learn more. But we could probably just, I think we should just spoil the rest of it now. Get into it. Yeah, let's get yeah. into it. Agreed. So, shall I give a sort of precy of what yeah. happens? Yeah. In, I'll do a precy of what happens in the poem because I think it, it is subtly mm. and substantially different in lots of ways. Um, so, the premise is this it's Christmas. Uh, King Arthur is having a big party. Uh, the Green Knight, who is just a completely alien figure, he's green, he's knight, um, turns up and he throws down a sort of playful combat challenge. He'll sort of take uh, a hit from someone there, um, so long as they accept to receive one back from him in a year's time. Um, and uh, there's sort of uh, some consternation about who take this challenge on, and Gawain, who is kind of... Uh, He's a sort of sly and rather callow member of uh, Arthur's court. He steps up, accepts the challenge, expecting to garner great celebration and praise for it. Um, and he just ably lops off the head of the Green Knight. So job done. You can't take a, a hit from a dead man. So everything's sorted, except you can. <laughs> because the Green Knight gets up, he picks up his head and says, see you next Christmas, pal. At which point Gawain realizes he's properly fucked it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and so a, a year passes and Gawain sets out to meet, uh, uh, you know, his fate essentially, uh, which is a big trope in Arthurian myths, going out on an adventure to find out who you are, basically. Um, in this case, it seems quite a final uh, sort of definition of who he is. Um, and so he, he's going to an appointed place. He's traveling across the Wirral Peninsula. Uh, in fact, which is yeah, no, was apparently a total shithole back then, um, and not where Premiership footballers live. Um, <laughs> and he, it sort of skips what happens on that journey. It says it actually explicitly says it would take too long to talk about. So um, you know, rest assured, it was a lot of fun. Um, uh, <laughs> and he finds himself half dead at the doors of this castle, where he's welcomed in by this a sort of avuncular figure called Bertilac de Hort Desert. Um, and at this castle, while, while Gawain recuperates, he's offered this other playful exchange, this other game of exchanging things. Mm. Um, each day, uh, Big Birdie Bertilac will go out hunting and he will gift to Gawain whatever prizes he brings home. And Gawain will give to Bertilac in return whatever he has received that day at the castle, which is tricky for him because what he's been receiving at the castle is uh, Bertilac's wife's attempts at seduction. <laughs> um, so each night he has to receive some just fucking horrible pelt, basically, of Bertilac <laughs> covered in gore, and he has to give him a little kissy in return. <laughs> um, and uh, this sort of awkwardness climaxes in in multiple senses, <laughs> with mm -hmm. the wife offering Gawain this magic sash, which will protect him from injury. And like Gawain's not an idiot; he he's he's aware that he's soon to have his head lopped off. And so Gawain takes it, and he does not give it to Bertilac. Naughty Gawain. So anyway, Gawain eventually sets out to meet the Green Knight, wearing this protective sash. And after sort of like fucking with him a bit, basically, the Green Knight um, gives Gawain a little nick on his neck. And he reveals himself to be none other than Bertilac himself, and that he has completely rumbled Gawain's little sash ruse. In fact, the whole thing with the wife trying to seduce him was a setup. Uh, to sort of test Gawain's purity and resolve. Um, and he says, naughty, naughty, you should have rightfully given me the sash as part of the gift exchange. And Gawain realizes at that point that he's been a total fucking coward um, and also broken his own kind of rules of conduct with how he interacts with these sort of uh, games of being a, 
being a guest, etc. Um, and he throws down the sash, uh, and uh, you expect him to sort of get before the Green Knight and say, "Go on, then, have a go at my neck uh, now." Um, but the Green Knight just sort of laughs. Uh, and says, "Well, you've learned a lesson, and they sort of part as friends." <laughs> and it's a weird story. Uh, mm. There's a, there's a lot going on, uh, but fundamentally, it's about how the rules of Arthur's world, how the idea of chivalry and uh, and courtly etiquette, how these oh, things can be bonus. tied up. <laughs> yeah, uh, how they can, and how they can be tied up into knots, and how like Gawain's obligations as a guest are in conflict with his desire to be a hero, a knight. And also as just a man who very much wants to stay alive and mm-hmm. also, you know, bone other people's wives. <laughs> um, and all these things intertwine and unravel and ultimately they need to be chopped right through uh, to get to the truth of things. Um, and that's that's what the poem's about. I've, when, I, when I was taught about the poem, I, I heard... And I've not. This is not something that I've seen in other discussions of it. So maybe this was complete nonsense. But I, I, I thought it was commissioned um, specifically by John of Gaunt um, to uh, present to the court of Richard II uh, as a sort of underhanded criticism of the um, way in which Richard ran his court, which was very much um, sort of addled with ideas of chivalry and courtly love and noblesse and these things which seemed quite archaic um at the time um and the poem or at least i I thought it was uh was meant to sort of skewer right through all of that bullshit um and show that actually um a, a lot of it is is hollow or contradictory but the film the film's very different mm. um i wouldn't say it's very different i mean it features a lot of the same plot points but the Gawain here is very different mm. and the difficulties he, he faces are not really about measuring up to some particularly archaic notion of uh, etiquette uh, like that would only be recognisable in the medieval period. But it's more simply about him being a good man or becoming a good man. I think I absolutely loved it. I wasn't mm. sure immediately upon watching it um, because it's sort of operating in this heightened mythic register that can come across as sort of absurdly self-serious or quite camp. And on top of that, it's laying all these depictions of the medieval that are quite not really medieval. But, uh, uh, they're sort of more like 18th century Gothic or even like modern horror sensibilities. Yeah. And both of those things can sort of feel a bit sort of like histrionic or over the top. And on top of that, like some of its dialogue, I thought was quite on the nose uh, there's a whole bit of, in which one character extemporizes on the nature of green and oh, the whole like, speech, you know, yeah. just, just mm. save, save the that for the essays, man. Yeah. yeah. I quite like um, that speech, to be honest. I thought that was a, I thought that was an interesting, I think that was specifically talking about earlier in this podcast, like talking about like, um, um, when you extemporize on your thesis in your, in your dialogue or not, mm. I think you think you're allowed to do it in this context given, you know, um, but also I think it was interesting against the, um, when that character, when when Bertilak's wife articulates the kind of terror of green, basically as rot mm. and decay, um, and as what will be left of you and your legacy, etc., which is such a recurring theme, I thought that was kind of a nice thing to introduce in a film that is about in many ways, the terror of environments beyond the city walls, which is such a big theme, right? Like how mm. alien and horrifying those landscapes are until you get to the Green Chapel. Um, and then also against the backdrop of like 
um i feel like it's been it, it was also i think it was helpful to me to kind of recalibrate oh yeah green like wilderness can be terrifying right like we are certainly in an age now where that sense of like well beyond these walls we've made is only terror has diminished mm. and if anything we've switched and now we spend correctly a lot of our time talking about um green is only a positive right and so like um and given all of the subsequent adaptations of of the green knight as a figure in myth or folklore the way it's been adapted in pop culture um you know the notion like we get our ents and our druids from from this green knight in many ways mm-hmm. um and, and groots and groots exactly um and so i quite liked that kind of um regrounding in horror i don't know to the extent that the, the green knight is meant to be uh sorry i'm getting away from the film here i i don't know that the green knight is specifically meant to be some sort of nature uh thing he he's not necessarily the same green knight who has leaves spilling out of his right uh, mouth as in kind of medieval carvings that you find in churches the, i'm saying the that that's the that's the that's how it's been subsequently taken yes right think, and that's definitely the way that they're going with it in the in, the film, in this show sure. and definitely yeah. i think i think if you drop that speech in um without any other kind of justifying uh visuals or themes then it, it would be like honkingly obvious that it, and just like feel so wrong but there's this just extraordinary sequence where um going has been assaulted by bandits and just completely uh, sort of uh disbanded of all his nightly possessions and he's uh, he's just a a guy on the floor tied up basically almost naked exposed to the elements and there's a slow swing that is such a long scene mm. that kind of like pans to the right um 360 degrees and see and as it pans, it goes through the seasons and then the moss grows up uh, the trees and then it, it comes back to him and he's just a corpse. He's just a skeleton. He's, he's been dissolved by nature. And then uh, it just, it pauses on that for a moment and then the shot just spins back around and goes back in time to where he is. Then gets back into his mad kind of hero scramble for survival. And I think without shots like that, that that speech wouldn't matter. It would, it would seem egregious and, mm. and almost stupid. Um, but I think turning the green knight and turning this whole kind of quest into this man's kind of uh the the all of the values that he is actually in a very shallow way trying to achieve trying to become this knight, trying to you know achieve this this status and having just been completely sh- almost shamed and made tiny <laughs> throughout the film uh both through through all the visuals um throughout him just like wandering mm-hmm. through landscapes licking a mushroom having a horrifying vision because he doesn't know what to eat you know just like <laughs> relentlessly just being owned by nature over and over yeah, again. Right. <laughs> uh it's actually just uh I, I i'm happy for the green knight to kind of be incorporated uh, to become this figure of of, of nature just uh, so uh, uh, this also feeds into the, just the bit before um the lord of the manor's wife makes that speech and kind of like lays out the moss is creeping in and we're all going to be moss and this is the truth of the world we live in um just right before that is actually my favorite conversation in the film and there's i think they're sitting in front of a fireplace and uh, <laughs> uh the lord of manor the manor is like oh so you you go to this place and then you're not honorable and he's like and gray's like yeah and then you come back and like you walk back and then you are and he's like yeah and the, the sort of unspoken <laughs> line there is like oh so everything you believe is just total shit 
that's like so good <laughs> so good and then for, to chain that into the speech is just to belittle this person and the the stupid ideas he has and Dove Patel's performance of the way that Gawain is portrayed um uh, especially in the way that he accepts the initial challenge with the green knight when he walks into king arthur's court where the green knight sort of like kneels on the ground arthur gives him excalibur i think and um but depatel's there and his whole body language i've literally seen a bloke just outside a pub who is like Oh, I think I'm supposed to fight now. <laughs> I, I, like, I, oh, oh god, things have escalated, and I've kind of fronted enough, and now I sort of have to do something. And his whole kind of like uh, jumping up and down, pacing back and forth is absolutely spot on for that kind of bravado and the foolish, stupid bravado that gets exposed throughout the rest of the film. Um, I think all of those things tie into that one theme of him being belittled and kind of unraveled. <laughs> I think yeah. There's so there's the line about how uh, why do you need to be great i think it is when yes, it isn't exactly. enough to be good and dev patel's gawain just does not understand that <laughs> yeah, and he, he he sees like his uh like uh, that was one other scene that i really wanted to talk about tom the one you mentioned uh where he just seems to think that by doing this thing he's ticked a box that's um, right. and become yeah. a hero and a great great man because he sees this as being completely transactional Mm. Uh, in a really shallow way and there's there's another uh sequence in the film which i think is actually my fa- favorite sequence in the film and it, it doesn't come from the poem at all uh it's just a, a an extra sort of vignette that that has been inserted where um he sort of does a side quest for a ghost oh, to find her head. why would you why would you ever ask why would you ask me that why would yeah you right yeah so he that? says so like, good he pauses like he's gonna do it and he pauses as though kind of like second guessing himself and he's like so what what am i going to get in return and she's like why would you ever ask me that <laughs> it's so good but it's just her delivery her just kind of utter disdain appalling you mm-hmm. know you fool it's uh oh, it's yeah delicious yeah. we'll, we'll pass the spoiler <laughs> warning so like she's um a dead a dead spirit seeking recompense basically seeking some sort of final moment to kind of just kind of finish her life quest you know i don't know uh, uh, no, describe it really. It's, it's the, the last stone on her, uh, on a grave, and uh, she's asked him to do this, and he's like, um, "But I'm questing knight, so I should get a cool sword or something, right?" <laughs> That's kind of his <laughs> yeah. vibe. And she's well, just the, like, yeah. "What the fuck are you talking about?" <laughs> what was so even... interesting about that is I thought yeah. that was sort of like in dialogue with gaming almost, or at least the the quest structure of gaming, which is very right. transactional as it well. It's about too. you know, uh, and I don't think that's really. Um, that that isn't a part necessarily of Arthurian myth, or, or it's or Welsh even... folklore, isn't it? Saint Winifred. Oh yeah, sorry, sorry. She she is, but the idea of him getting something from right. doing a thing is uh, something material is is not part of Arthurian legend. In fact, that's it's it's more about discovering who you are. Uh, you do mm. things in order to kind of reveal your innate goodness or otherwise. It, it felt like a almost a, a riff on Lady of the Lake, like the idea that you know you. Get some loot. You, you converse with a, a great spiritual being, get some loot. But there, there are like repeated um, encounters with the divine, where mm. he almost just gets literally crushed by this extraordinary scene out of nowhere, where he just sees giants over the hill of uh, almost what looks like a Scottish moor, and it um, it doesn't do anything plot wise. It just simply establishes the fact that he's this tiny, insignificant organism. And we, we might talk about the fox and how that's a bit of a I feel I found to be quite an awkward device, really, just kind of like. Oh, a little dog pal that kind of helps you. 
Um, whereas actually, it's quite cute though. Mm. It was cool, and also I thought that was a real fox for the longest time. And I, thought, <laughs> I thought they'd trained a fox. I was like, I didn't even think you could do that. And it's like, obviously, <laughs> it's just it's just a really really well executed bit of special effects. Um, but I think like I I always would have preferred it if he didn't have a little fox pal. That like he's he should be alone in this. I think the way the rest of the film kind of feels around him. I don't know. I think there's a I think there's a broader structure. Like there's so many different ways to take this. I was just thinking that like all those like sort of wilderness encounters. It's really interesting how it, I thought just generally that it's threaded into like the story of Saint Winifred with some changes. Right, like she's she's no longer a nun, for example, like that kind of thing. <laughs> but that's you know very much like um, in the sort of uh, Welsh christianity or kind of welsh folklore then you have these like sweeping landscapes that could be could be dartmoor i guess in the sense that i've always liked mm. and i appreciate it's supposed to be the Wirral, but you know what i mean um <laughs> where where there's this sort of like through line in um in a lot of uh this fiction of of so you've gone to cornwall by mistake <laughs> um <laughs> which i thought was really really vivid but i think the thing that the film does as well in in tying um oh god that was almost disgustingly pat like um it introduces the girdle much earlier for example um and the girdle is explicitly the creation of um Gawain's mother Morgana yeah. Le Fay um and that it is part of this sort of like recursive pattern there's the heavy inference that the fox is probably her as well and it's like the structure of the game has been created around him by his own mother um in this who is a witch and is sort of yeah. outside of that civilizational bubble she goes oh. to the tower with the other witches to kind of like summon the green knight's letter into being and therefore in some way summon the green knight into being and there's this um um but what it does is it creates a sense that like in addition to this like journey into the wilderness like he is like absolutely trapped within this quite malign structure that's been created for him that mm. um is is there to kind of, and, and i think one of the things that i found really striking about it is the film completely lacks the comfort that is offered by the poem in terms of um knowing um knowing that this was all okay in the end like that this was ultimately um for his benefit in some way and i think mm. there's like two sides to that one is uh, the fact that the Green Knight is actually Bertilak is never said in the film, and it's two different actors, so you know it's sort of implied that he isn't. Um, secondly, obviously, it it leaves that last notion ambiguous about whether he's actually going to get decapitated or not. But also, crucially, I think the thing that hangs over it is the 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 um, the author of this game that that Gawain is trapped in is not the Green Knight or Bertilak. Um, uh, you know, this kind of like avuncular, um, sort of very explicitly like patriarchal figure who you get the comfort in the poem of like is also part of the same system in some ways, like is also, you know, a, a landed knight, um, but is in fact actually far more obviously um, Gawain's mother, whose objectives are far harder to pass, right? Um, in the way that she's presented, and it seems like, uh, well, I mean, this this gets down to the big difference between the the Gawain in the poem and the Gawain in, in mm. the film is that um, Gawain in the poem is is already a knight, like he's already a part right. of that world. 
and he's frankly like a, a bit of a slick motherfucker you know he he knows all the rules and he plays them well and and the point of the poem is to destabilize all of the things that the Arthurian world is built on whereas the going in the film uh, doesn't know who the fuck he is he doesn't know <laughs> right. if he wants to grow yeah. up let alone be a knight or a king as is implied by this which isn't mm. ever Gawain's particular fate i don't think um so it's 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 his mother essentially preparing him to be become a good person to become uh, to shake him out of feckless youth and for him to be prepared to become a king which is a sort of unexpected thing at the end where we uh, which I thought was absolutely extraordinary brilliant. montage. That, well, that, you, yeah, yeah, you, so you, you thrust forward through the rest of Gwen's life as you see the repercussions of his f- fecklessness, of his inconstancy, of his cowardice. You know, essentially, um, ultimately bringing in his doom, and then it, you know, suddenly, you know, a record scratch, and you're in, you're suddenly back with the Green Knight's axe looming over him, and he has to make a decision about whether he. Uh, changes as as a as a as a man and he grows up essentially mm. but and it's interesting that whereas you know the, the poem is all about sort of uh undermining the world of Gawain it the, the film is about preparing him for the world that he will face um and I think that's actually as as darker as the film is in a weird way I found that more reassuring because at the end of the poem even though the the, the knight has like slapped Gwen on the back and sent him off uh with a chuckle like the entire world of, of, of you know of chivalry has been completely shagged at that point right <laughs> you know it, everything is hollow and you know Gwen goes away with a smile but he kind of realizes that everything everything is a house of cards there's no stability to anything that's built up whereas the, even though you don't know if Gawain at the end of the film is actually going to have his head chopped off you do feel like he has grown as a human being and there is right. now like a promise that he will be better he will be better able to exist in the world that he is uh, he is facing at the end of the film there's also such a fragility to the way that king arthur and the court is presented whenever ever yeah. you see them as being old and uh you know uh failing people and even in the, the actual um the moment that uh Gawain steps forward to accept the initial challenge the cowardice of the the rest of the knights around the table like they mm. won't even lend him a sword or uh, the jaded yeah. yeah, exactly. And you get the feeling that it, it is this crusty... In fact, the very first... Uh, uh, one of the many beautiful images in the film is uh, whoever design, designed the crowns. Of yeah. This kind of like pseudo-Christian kind of... But like or slightly paganistic thing mm. with the uh, the halo behind the head. Um, but also it was uh, King Arthur's head with the crown catching fire and flaming off into nothing. It's just a, a little kind of dreamlike moment in the opening montage, which also, by the way, includes a, 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 some geese fucking with a donkey for like <laughs> uh, about yeah. like several minutes. <laughs> so uh, it, it gives you a lot initially to chew on <laughs> and well, you just don't know where it's going. And then it's kind of like that. It, so yeah. this is what I really love about that opening. Cause that first shot is like you're in the foreground. I think it's a goat. I think it's some geese bothering a goat. And in uh, the background yeah, right. across three shots, a barn in the background is more and more on fire. Oh, yeah, and yeah. and it just yeah, catches yeah, yeah. it, just it just stays on fire, and that's never addressed. But like the thing I really like, uh, there's there's a there's a thing here that I really love about it, which is that, um, so obviously Gawain or kind of like Garwin as he's kind of introduced in that in that section is like, um, obviously part of Arthur's court, and it invites you to see the Round Table, to see Arthur, to see the other mm. knights, um, 
they are never named and you have to sort of read that in and there's sort of like this weird i think sort of experiential split there which is really interesting whereas if you carry with you all of that sense of the significance of arthur and excalibur and the various knights that are present mm. the, there are many moments there where you sort of share Gawain's perspective like when when it, when no one will offer him a sword and arthur offers him his etc mm. otherwise what you're seeing at the same time is a, a a sickly and you're explicitly told kind of doomed court right this arthur is like on his on his last legs very much and has no other you know family or meaningful heirs right that's the kind of it's, the, it's desperate when he invites him to his side it seems desperate right like he's right. clawing onto someone to pull up to that and it's that like podium. this um this era is coming to an end right this is ending and it is mm. falling down kind of um whether you kind of like it or not, and maybe despite the kind of determination of the people involved still keeping these, this game going functionally that it isn't. And I think the thing that's really interesting is like, this is something that I have a bit of a struggle with because it's it's literally relying on a decision that was made in the credits rather than in the film. But mm. um, in the in the story, in, 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 in Arthurian, you know, uh, legend, Gawain is, is Arthur's nephew, but his mother is, is it more juice more juice i can't remember how to pronounce her name um it's not morgan lefay right it's not the the villainous um uh, evil sister um uh but in the film it is um you know uh, sarita chowdhury's character is explicitly credited as as being morgan lefay oh, right. and so um and so that sort of transplant means that like this gawain is in the dual position of being gawain and mordred at the same time yeah and um and I feel like the the really interesting thing is you see that amazing flash, you know, the the kind of the the kind of uncanny flash forward or kind of like dream sequence at the end where you see what happens when he returns, having decided to stick to the lie of the game, you know, explicitly having to lie to do so to pretend that he honorably dispatched his quest, and then sustains the system for a little bit longer until the sheer kind of weight and misery of it bears down on him and he decapitates himself basically or he takes this other path but that other path explicitly i think condemns that whole system to its final collapse right and so um by, by what you're told and so there's this really interesting doubling there of like two different um specifically two different really kind of key moments and i think the 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 cool thing about it is that is significant only if you are entering the film attaching a ton of significance to Arthur and his court and chivalry more generally and all of the things that the story is really interested in watching crumble in front of you, which I really, really like. And the fact that you get a more human, as you said, Marsh, like almost a happier, more humane ending out of that system being exposed for, for, for what it is. Do you think that Arthur is in on it? Arthur and a character who I recognise as Merlin, but is never mentioned as Merlin. I do. They are in it with Arthur's sister, Morgana Le Fay, I didn't Gawain's get mother. At all. I didn't get from, that impression. No. From the film itself. Though, no, be. but I, I did wonder. I did, it's, it's not implied as such, but I wonder if you know Arthur needs an heir who is who is fit to rule. And you know, I'm sure that might be part of his calculations. Like even irrespective of that, like arcane plot i think i i got a sense of something quite sympathetic and quite pathetic about arthur mm. actually from mm. the film and that 
he seems to me to know that it's all falling apart, that there's nothing left, and that he's sort of grasping around and sees Gawain as perhaps a sort of something he could leave behind. <laughs> well, what he says is, I would know you, right? It's mm. that thing of like, who are you? And Gawain says, I don't fucking know. And he's like, he's right, like, well, go out and I'm get, the Green Knight, welcome out. to Jackass, go find out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I think like, and um, I actually quite like the idea that the whole thing is not like the the kind of, you know, uh, the, the usurpation of Arthur's power by um, Morgan, but like the kind of complicity of that older generation in the end of the system is a really interesting way of, of looking at it. Um, because there's that sort of, um, because there's so much strangeness in its structure as it keeps kind of like, uh, it keeps, it feels like the, the, the universe that the story is taking place in or the kind of, all of the kind of, um, unreal things that occur are all geared to put. Gawain back on a very particular path, like the reappearance of the axe, the reappearance of the girdle that he loses, mm. right? And it's like, like the horse, fa- yeah. It's kind of yeah, the fact that these yeah. things are kind of like put back in his path constantly in order to kind of like keep him on a particular, in a particular story with it being on him to, um, to break out of it effectively. I thought yeah. it, it was, uh, it's really interesting. Like, I think we, we've got to talk about the water spunk. We do. I really want to talk about the spunk. Because I think I thought that was a moment because I I found it almost to be a uh, his quest in this film to be almost a, a an eternal shaming exercise <laughs> where forces beyond his control just destroy any moments of kind of like agency he has until he has to admit that he's kind of pathetic and needs to be rebuilt um, in a kind of almost cultish breakdown and break back and build back up type dynamic and I thought that that was the moment like the way she says you are no knight it's like any illusion of honor you had uh, is long gone. But that to me wasn't even the moment that he lost that. It was when he abandoned the person he was with before he even embarked on the quest, right? She yeah, gets right. absolutely <laughs> completely disregarded. And he, his cruelty towards her is, is impassionless and lack of empathy towards that, that person is uh, just it comes back at the end of the film. And the way, especially in the montage where he becomes king, it's there's this brutal scene where her baby is taken away. And mm. uh, you see sort of the mm. dynamics at work before that notion gets destroyed and gets sort of like um, dissolved by this shaming moment. I don't know. I, I like, it's, 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 the film is so ambiguous and kind of vague in lots of ways. I think there's lots of ways to read it, but I wonder how you guys thought. I, th- I think that I, I like that moment for a few reasons. One is because I think like there's, it's, it's such a, it's, it, it's it's quite playful in a way as well it has it this is, yeah. this thing of um the you know you've ruined the magic gir- magic girdle when you've jizzed all over it <laughs> <laughs> like but it but it fundamentally like but what it does is like that that bawdy element <clears throat> is so um i think important to like this the poem as well to some extent right the, the playfulness of it and well, right. certainly... I mean, I, I kind of think that receiving the the girdle or sash uh, in in the poem is essentially uh, consummation of, of yeah. the sexual seduction that's been going on, even right. though up until that point Gawain's resisted. Yes, um, right. I, I think it just makes explicit that that connection here. Yeah. What I mean is like, yeah, there's the, there's the courtly love element of it where you have the um, the, the you know the, the the token exchange, but like also, I think there's an interest both in medieval poetry and in the film in then like. In, 
get it cutting to the cutting to the chase <laughs> you know what i mean like what does it mean to be given a girdle, <laughs> <Right>. girdle. <laughs> oh there it is um <laughs> um and uh that boardiness i think is is like is really important to the story like i think i, I was something i had with it which i was sort of um my first concerns because I opened and I was like really engaged and I loved the, some of the, the visual storytelling and the sleight of hand it seemed to be setting up. But one of my first concerns was like, well, um, it's now a bit of a trope when you're adapting or basically just setting any story in the past in the, you know, the current era to be like, well, this, this take on a medieval setting is different because everyone here is fucking all the time. And so opening on Gawain waking up in a, in a, in a brothel, waking up, I, and I love the way that the comp, you know that his relationship with the woman he wakes up with there is the most important relationship in his life. It's not mm. throwaway as it would be in Game of Thrones or something like that. But that like that sort of setup of like he ain't no ordinary knight. He's a knight with his bum out is so familiar now and over familiar mm. that I initially I was a little bit worried that like for me Gawain's miss you know at that point we don't even we don't even know that he's not Sir Gawain yet. Gawain's like failures as a knight in the poem are interesting and i was worried that we were heading in this direction where he was just more of a bad boy right like right, because yeah. that is like that is how you introduce jamie lannister for example not how you introduce gawain necessarily and then i think there's like that the the big quivery pile of jizz moment um feels like it it goes this step beyond what game of thrones would do you know and yeah. like uh, to the let's, point let's of, be honest i don't yeah. i don't Need to be too much about this, but the man's backed up. What's going on? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of jizz. It's a, but it's like a, so much. It is <laughs> so much. Um, and you know, and I, I actually, I couldn't figure out what that what what gift he needed to necessarily return <laughs> to Bertilak to be square after that. Uh, <laughs> oh, he's, he's he's got a lovely beard, Joel Edgerton. Oh, could geez. imagine it. That would um, sop up. That would sop oh, up. Oh God. Fluid. Um, but um. <laughs> But who who was the recipient? I don't know. This is a question. Um, <laughs> but I think that boardiness is is sort of like the thing that then gives us a kind of I don't know. For me, it was both both felt quite modern, as I say, as a kind of like little subversion of medieval horniness in pop culture, and also as like this thing that then immediately threads it into its real history, which then ultimately would lead through to Chaucer and you know like plenty of people getting kissed on the bottom and. Yeah, that sort right. of the, the the punch and Judy of it, which is also present in the, yeah, in the film. Um, the, the the my I once um, as part of my theatre company was hired to be in situ medieval peasants at a uh, medieval feast in Salisbury in Wiltshire, being held by people who were very committed to the bit of pretending to be a feast hall full of like yeomen in the 14th century. And I spent three hours in doing a very stupid West Country accent, telling the story of Gawain and the Green Knight to tables full of like increasingly pissed and red faced 50 year old sort of Wiltshire dudes. It was one of the strangest <laughs> nights of my life. <laughs> but, um, but a big part of that was like, I, I had studied it as a far more kind of, um, religious text in a way and for its for its you know its echoes of you know for the ways it relates to um chivalry and the way that the uh, concepts of, of courtly love and, and romance uh have a, a like a religious element to do with the sort of the 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 sexless love of christ as well as in everything else 
Um, and I think I discovered in that moment how useful it is when trying to entertain a cider pissed, like local, like, you know, bank manager to lean hard on the, the, the sexy bits, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or the very daft kind of panto-esque sort of, um, uh, exchange of little kisses. Um, and I was glad that was in the film, basically. I think it does also set, I think he is supposed to be such a chancer. I think as, um, mm. I said initially, like, I think, um, it's not so much that he's a kind of Game of Thrones, or everyone's having a crack type of, and now we get to show it because we're on HBO type of uh, deal. More that uh, he is a man who lacks substance fundamentally. Mm. I, I think like he likes what he likes, and he's a young man trying to you know <laughs> have fun. And occasionally, uh, a bloke in a pub calls his mum a witch, and then he fights him to death in a pub car park. <laughs> <laughs> literally a moment in the film even though the man is like 60 years old <laughs> because that's how he thinks he should behave or wants to behave in the moment and that he actually there is no deeper kind of morality or code to what he's doing beyond just kind of getting what he wants and also mm. climbing a ladder uh and i i think exposing that person to the horrific journey that follows it's kind of a revenge I enjoyed watching him go through, even though I oh, also, yeah. thanks to Dev Patel's performance, I think, I completely wanted him to live <laughs> and win and perhaps get better. Um, and I'm not sure this is this is always one of those things where it comes down to how charismatic the actor is and how much like a person is completely chancing everything, including every fight he's ever in in the film, when mm. he clearly doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, in fact, it's, it's, yeah. yeah. It's know, a miracle yeah, yeah. he's he is actually at all sympathetic, really. And I think it, that it is, is all down to Dev Patel's performance. I think after the scene where he he basically shows he will never commit to a relationship with uh uh he, he Alicia Vikander's character, Essel. Stony faced. Oh god, that silence is horrible. It's really yeah. brutal and his totally dead expression. It's like he doesn't even have again him as a coward, he doesn't even have the guts to just say no <laughs> and like that's mm. not gonna happen he just leaves it to hang and she figures it, it's, it's heartbreaking it is it's i think movie. i think what i love about that so much is it exposes the emptiness of the things he could say like you practically are ready for him to say i cannot it is you know against my quest or it is against mm. the law or my quest or the society or any of these things and we all know that's bullshit because it just is and so it's like I think the thing I love about it so much is that the structures that it um, takes apart by the end are so transparently flimsy. It doesn't need to talk about them, you know, right? Like they're, they're just, they just hang in that moment where he's completely silent and it's not, mm. it ceases to, and this is the nice thing about it. I think it becomes a bit more transcendent about it is it ceases to be, Oh, isn't it a shame? He can't marry his nice girlfriend because he's a knight. Oh, and it yeah, becomes, men get shit ideas about their own destiny in their heads and it ruins their relationships and or, that is that is sort of timeless that, or is that they're too cowardly to actually say the thing explicit to the person so they use these devices to actually uh right but yeah it's, it's about yeah, it becomes about his cowardice rather than about some tragic system that is kind of imposing yeah. this on him I th yeah i think that's really true um i think there's interesting kind of moments of that appear to pay respect to the hierarchy he's in though um for example the moment where king arthur literally yodas to death uh 
you guys remember this bit where like uh eventually he knights Gawain. I think this might be in the montage actually, and then lies down on the bed um uh, across mm. his wife, and then literally vanishes and softens into the pillows. It's literally Yoda's death. He he does die like Yoda, yeah, I didn't. <laughs> he, he does die like Yoda. Um, but in a, in a way that is kind of I I I wonder why like Arthur's supposed to be such a sympathetic character in this, really, given that he's kind of driving Gawain and he's sort of the linchpin for this whole heroic system that people are trying men are trying to kind of uh prove themselves in it's practically on the scope of the film to be honest i, I, mean, I think it, i think it's like i think he, i think it my take on it would be the film tempts you into liking arthur because you want to and mm. makes that really hard every turn he is nice but he is also flim like desperate in a way that is unsettling and then when the he's series... also killed yeah. a lot of people yeah like, that battlefield that <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah good point. that's all he's doing and there's a weird line where he says when he's banging on about how he subdued the Saxons, and they yeah. And in a line I don't like actually, he says they bowed their heads like babes, which is not a thing that babies do. <laughs> they don't bow their heads very much. I mean, shit their pants, sure, but not not much bowing. Anyway, but yeah, it, it, there is there is a ruthlessness uh, and a brutality to Arthur's regime, which is which is in the background there. Yeah, and I think there's I think that's present particularly in the in the sense of like. And I think the important thing is that every time you try and like this character or try and attach to what you want to see as romantic or good in Arthur's court, you, your attention is drawn to how cold it is and your attention to the sinister things that he says, or specifically at those crucial moments where he looks to Merlin for confirmation. And Merlin in this is less Gandalf and more like Rasputin. Like he's just <laughs> lurking there. It's like, he looks like the kind of, like the, like the, evil universe alan moore just sort of like lurking kind of as this great big kind of hairy tattooed figure in the corner who is entirely menacing the entire time there's no there's no point where you, there's no moment where you get a sense of like he is you know proto obi-wan mm. you know this is this is like a sinister vizier who is sort of himself decrepit but more kind of like comfortably ancient and presiding over this structure that he seems sort of to be in total control of right like when he takes the baby right it's like mm, merlin yeah. merlin seems to be like and this is i think we could stay on this for ages but it does feel like there's this real unsettling of the dynamic between merlin and, and morgana lefay in terms of like which one of these is in the wrong here you know like yeah. in terms of who's holding that system up and who is um pushing it over its final kind of little precipice it's a much more pagan film it than is. source material. I, I like, I mean, there's mm. there's no Christianity in it whatsoever, which is, I don't, mm. I don't think it needs to to, to be a, a comment on Christianity, and I think its absence doesn't hurt the things that it is trying to achieve. But it is very notable that it is, uh, it is not in dialogue at all, really, with Christianity. Whereas obviously the the, the poem is written in a context where that was inescapable. Mm. Um, mm. I think it's very important to the poem as well. Like that's the you know and. I think that that is an interesting choice. I think partly because, um, what's it's an interesting like complication. Then I would say of that structure and where it comes from. Um, whether it, I don't know whether it's an attempt to universalize it or to do the opposite. Like, well, I think it's just more more that we've come to feel like the hero's journey is something that's identifiable outside of the idea of you know God mm -hmm. uh, appointing 
people personally to be victorious or not. Like the world has moved on. This is more a discussion of what it is to be moral and a good person uh, and a hero outside of the rigid context in which the the poem was written. Sure. Um, I, I don't think it matters that it's it shed that stuff. Um, and and maybe yeah, I don't know. Maybe it it, uh, it helps the film in a way because I think if it had been as complicated and dark as it is, and also have the layering on of uh, you know a very Christian worldview it would have raised all kinds of arguments about the agenda of the film, which would have actually distracted from it, I think. Yeah. I don't think it's entirely free of Christian imagery, though. Like, I think particularly no. in the in the sort of flash forward at the end, like, Gawain as, as, as king is, is, feels explicitly like a, um, a, a Christian crusader king, for example, right? Like, that's, yeah. that's the impression that, like, everything in the costuming and the, the, the sort mm. of situations you see him in leans heavily into that imagery um the things that you know complicate it are the knights of the round table themselves who are presented like with the sign of like a pentagram for example instead of a cross um yeah it's it's um but i I agree with you i think i think it, it feels to me more like a studied decision to put some distance there rather than necessarily a notion that this isn't a factor it felt like it just didn't want to get bogged down in that or even raise the possible question of any of those moral codes being part of this and Mm. like more than um for me it still comes down to the code of what this one man's conceptions of honor are versus what uh perhaps people around him think they should be like the the systems around him that like would enable him to become an honorable or good person and you hear different moral codes expressed and i think that's that's one where the, the, the side quest moment uh does almost try to force him to empathize with this woman and her uh, horrendous story where a lord has come through the manor and uh, killed her and thrown her head into a lake and he has to retrieve it and it's almost like there are a lot of explicit teaching moments that Gawain fails Mm. throughout the movie that I found quite interesting because that that that's kind of gets away from the hero story the journey thing it's where the hero learns by doing heroic things whereas Gwen kind of does nothing heroic uh he kind of fails forwards for the entire film um mm. up to the point where only through a kind of nightmarish vision of his own horrendous future where he becomes a monster does he actually think oh i could get out of this by perhaps discarding this, this particular notion of honor but it's never quite clear whether like i know the the green knight does absolve him and the, also by the way fantastic final line off oh, with yeah. your off with your head <laughs> fuck off child <laughs> uh off you go back into the wilderness see how you do that kind of uh that kind of vibe to it i just i like the idea that he uh, i know uh Marsh said earlier that like he's supposed to like he's just he's clever but i don't think i think he's stupid in this film i think like he Mm -hmm. i don't think he has any particular uh, i think his agency isn't driven by his own intellect at all (laughs) it's driven it's driven by him just kind of feeling like he has to do things because that's the system he finds himself in and he's kind of improvising because he has a certain he has youth and a certain amount of martial ability and has been born into a certain position and then he's very much like cousin greg out of succession i would say (laughs) (laughs) 
but he gets repeatedly shamed for it. Uh, I think that's I think that's the whole dynamic. I think it always mm. it does feel about Patel's character and the way Patel portrays him. It feels like it's very very well observed to me. I'm not sure whether that's the actor introducing a dynamic to the script, but I don't. I think this feels so thoughtful and the way the imagery kind of um, coheres with those moments and the sense that his ideas and the court's ideas and King Arthur's ideas and the round table's ideas are so, all so stupid and transient. Um, I don't know. It feels it feels intentional to me, and I, I love that mm. about it. And I also find it horrifying because it's also a story about society collapsing and being being eaten. I um, did. I did. Just, something just, just occurred to me on the on that, and also on the the Christian Christianity point. Um, it doesn't move on from it because it is fundamentally also a Christmas film. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> true, yeah. <laughs> right. Like the the prominence of like you know, but it's Christmas. Um, do they uh, actually say Christmas? Yes, they may several use. Times. Do they, or do they use the subtitles as well? The Christmas yeah, and, they explicitly yeah. say oh, Christmas yes. yeah, yeah, many times. So, and I think I think that was a really nice thing they didn't like. I, don't know, I love the sort of the. I know it's not an anachronism, but it has that slightly anachronistic feeling of like in such a kind of um, uncomfortable setting to have that kind of reference to. Well, you know, we'll be kind to one another now because it is Christmas. Let's have a game. Whatever you win in this game of Monopoly, I will return to you next year. Uh, there's a really good uh, Taskmaster slash Green Knight meme that's going around if you're a fan of the uh, show. <laughs> wow, I love both those things. How have I not seen this? Well, I've just posted it in, in our in our Discord, so you can check it out later. I think, uh... But um, anyway, <laughs> I'm, in summation, I'm going to be uh, disappointed if June does not also have a lot of jizz and a talking fox. But only time yeah. will tell. Well, I mean, you've got to conserve your moisture on the desert planet, Arrakis. <laughs> the still suits will reabsorb it and feed it back like, to you. Yeah, like I mean, you can give tears to the dead, but what you, yeah, don't, just, let's, let's, but <laughs> leave it at that. Cheers to the smash. <laughs> exactly. Well, we can um, always examine the deleted scenes where I'm sure yeah. that uh, it might be considered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, this film's flipping awesome. I it's love great. It. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really, really like it. I, I really want to watch it again and sort of like, especially after this discussion, to see if I've got to like. I did. Uh, I will say, dangers notwithstanding, I did go to see it at the cinema and it was fucking amazing. So ah, uh, it's got it's beautiful. It sounds incredible as well. Yeah, and the soundtrack. Mm. I, I meant to sort of talk more about the horror of it, but I think that there's not much to say about it other than there's a lot you could do with uh, um, notes that slowly go upwards without end <laughs> while you're watching a montage and. Uh, it, it, it does a lot of work and it's very effective. Brilliant film. Great. Go we wrap in. this podcast up in a bow and yes, then cut it. it in twain. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, that's all of the podcasts we've got time for. Thank you for joining us for an hour and a half of computer game followed by an hour of computer Gwen. Um, fuck. Uh, if you... <laughs> Um, <laughs> if you would uh, like to send us uh, a question or an email for future episode, you can email us at questions at crowbar.com. Thank you as ever to our Patreon backers. You can find out more about supporting the podcast at patreon.com forward slash create and crowbar. Our discord community can be found where the link to the community can be found on our website at create and crowbar.com, which is where you'll also find assorted other episodes, much like this one. Um, uh, we have a YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash create and crowbar for these podcasts, but with a picture uh, much like the film uh, that we were just discussing. Um, I think that's it. I haven't done this in a while. Um, my name is Chris Thurston. 
Sorry. I've been Marsh Davis. And I've been the probably large wad of jizz, Tom Senior. <laughs> <laughs> Look who's Meowth now, he screams. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks yeah. for listening, Thank everybody. Thanks for listening, everybody. Off with his head. <laughs>